Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Jones Sports. Tyler Jones here with you. So glad to have you with us. We are live from Daytona Beach, Florida, the site of the Great American Race, the Daytona 500. Got a great lineup of guests that join us uh, here in just a bit. You'll hear from Adam Alexander from Fox Sports. Uh, he'll be here in a bit. Also got uh, former driver and team owner Matt Tiff is in the house, and then... Uh, friend of the show and uh, the studio of Soapbox Network, our colleague and uh, race car driver, David Starr, is also here with us as well. A uh, big show ahead from Daytona. Uh, and uh, also joining me is uh, Derek Haglin and uh, Tom Bridges. Tom, of course, holding things down back in Oklahoma. Derek is in Kansas City, uh, home of the Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs. We'll get to Derek here in just a moment. I'll bring in Thomas first. Tom, uh... I got to tell you, you know, this is my fourth trip to Daytona now. And uh, going to these big events, you know, whether it's NFL playoff games, the Final Four, you know, major championship golf, Daytona again. I mean, it just doesn't get any better than uh, than being at the big events, does it, Tom? You know, I always said I was going to go to Daytona. I've had many chances. I still have not. If I would have had my work from home job still, I probably would have been with you. But, uh, you know, just got back from Nashville, so I couldn't really follow two and two up that quickly. Tom, uh, I think I need to make a return visit to the wing house, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a automatic. I mean, there's no uh, – I mean, I mean that's, a, that's a must, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, the, the wing house is the Daytona local version – of Hooters with uh, with better wings and everything. That's on the list. Go to the beach, enjoy the race, go party. I mean, and Tom, you've been in the state of Florida many times. Probably the best thing about this entire state is uh, bars open until like 3 a.m. And you factor in Eastern time and all that. I mean, that's uh, that, that's a big win. I mean, yeah, you're, you know, it being Eastern time, I mean, you're flirting with, uh, you're flirting with the best. I mean, yeah. you know, you, I, I worry about you, honestly, going down there. <laughs> we'll see if I uh, survive in advance uh, like the NCAA tournament. More on Daytona, the Daytona 500 coming up uh, later on. But uh, here with us today as well, uh, we mentioned Derek Haglund. Uh, he is the new Kansas beat writer for uh, KU The Hill, and uh, we're excited to have him on with us. But uh, more importantly, besides just the KU element of things, but – the Kansas City Chiefs are Super Bowl champions, and we'll react to all of that right now as Derek is here with us. Derek, uh, I was with you the last time they won the Super Bowl. Saw you cry. We had a great moment. And uh, you had to cry again, right? You just let all the emotions out, right? Absolutely. Um, and and I'm going to gloss over the fact that you picked the Eagles last week. Hey, reverse um, psychology. It worked. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that slide. Um, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, I, 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 I don't know if I would say I cried less. I, I didn't cry as much. Um, because I started to cry when they after Harrison Butker made the kick. Cause I knew the Eagles weren't going to do anything. Um, they didn't have enough time. I think they had like six seconds or whatever it was. So or eight seconds. So, um, yeah, you know, the Super Bowl was wild. Um, it was it was crazy. I was about to say if they lost this one, um, I was just the next time they made it, I was gonna make sure everybody who was at the house where I was 
when they beat the Niners and you were there was going to have to come into town the next time if the Chiefs got back to another Super Bowl. So, you know, some some demons were slayed. Um, I'm superstitious. I'm not superstitious, but I'm stitious. So, you know, I, I learned that you can do some stuff differently and, and your team still win. You know, Derek, a lot of people are pointing to the the holding call uh, that was the right call on James Bradbury, and he admitted as much. And I understand why that is getting the attention it is, sure. But to me, I, I, I felt like the difference in this game, what I point to, Mahomes played a perfect game, yeah. in particular in the second half. Even on a bum ankle, the way that he responded the way that he did was – I mean, that was legendary uh, from, from his end. To do do what he did there was outstanding. But, I mean, as, as good as Jalen Hurts played, it came down to who flinched first, I thought. And Jalen flinched first when, you know, he had that, uh, that fumble that turned into a scoop and score by Nick Bolton here. Both these teams played really well. It was a yeah. high-scoring game to the, that came down to the very end. The difference in this game, I don't think, was whether – a holding call should have happened or not. To me, the difference was this game that both quarterbacks played well, but Mahomes played just a little bit better than Jalen Hurts did. Well, you know, it was a penalty. I understand, you know, people who at that time, you know, when the Super Bowl's on the line, swallow the whistle. I felt like there was a more egregious holding call on Bradbury in the second quarter against Juju when um, Juju ran a little dig across the middle and it wasn't called and he got turned and there was no flag. Um, I felt that was more egregious that should have been called when, when that wasn't called in the second quarter. Um, but you know, like the, the Eagles have said, and like everybody else has said, that's not the reason they lost the game. You know, I don't, I've watched that game a couple times and I've not said any time watching it, either team played bad. Both teams just played really well. You know, I think both defense plays and, and had good instances where, where they looked really good. And then the offenses just made plays. You know, we talked about, you know, Jalen Hurts last week and, and Steve Spagnola's game plan clearly was, hey, I'm going to take away the running backs. I'm going to make Jalen Hurts beat me running and throwing the ball, and I'm going to live with that because if he can do that, I like our chances where our defense is, especially our young secondary. And they had some moments, you know, Trent McDuffie lost the ball on the A.J. Brown um, touchdown reception, you know, that was Jalen Hurts just throwing it up, giving his guy a chance. Um, I, I don't think that was a great throw, but it was a throw where, you know, A.J. Brown was able to make a great adjustment and find the ball. Um, but when you talk about blinking first, too, I, I think Nick Sirianni blinked first because he had the opportunity. Um, you know, the Chiefs went down to start the third quarter, cut it to 24 to 21. They went down, got a field goal. They had been aggressive all half, and then – the, the Chiefs go down and get um, get a touchdown to take the lead 28-21 or 28-27 on the on the Kadarius Tony Corndog play, which is just amazing that that's the name of the play. Corndog, um, Jackie. Corndog's for all these people. One one of the biggest plays in the Super Bowl was called Corndog. So God love Andy Reid. Um, and Andy said that's what Patrick calls when, when they're in the huddle. Um, but – you know, Sirianni, I think, stopped being aggressive in the second half. You know, they 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 immediately the punt right after that, that possession, they punted the ball. They gave up the longest punt return in Super Bowl history to Kadarius Tony, who returned at 65 yards to the five-yard line. Then the Chiefs punch it in. Um, 
you know, that pe- holding penalty was not the reason that they lost. The Eagles defense gave up 245 yards of total offense in the second half on just four possessions for the Chiefs. The right. Chiefs scored four times in the second half on all four possessions, three touchdowns and the game-winning field goal. The holding penalty was not why the Eagles lost the game. And I think you saw, and we talked about it, Tyler, in a game where it's the Super Bowl and you have two-plus weeks off to prepare, who is it going to favor more? The coaching staff with more experience. And we saw that with Andy Reid, and especially on the offensive end, because every time they got near the red zone, Andy Reid knew the motion that he needed to run and everything that they needed to do because the looks they were going to get from that Eagle secondary, and they never made the adjustment to stop playing man in the red zone. Yeah. Uh, Tom, what was your takeaways from uh, Sunday night? You know, Derek's absolutely right. There wasn't – it wasn't the reason that they lost was that holding call. I didn't necessarily like to see it. I still think the Chiefs would have won, um, like Derek said. Uh, and and there were so many missed calls. The only, I guess the only problem that I have with it, uh, to be honest with you, is that they didn't really call shit all game. Like That's- nothing was really called. I mean, which – Okay, I respect the, the play, but at the same time, I, the Chiefs still would have kicked kick, like kicked the field goal. Jalen Hurts would still have had barely any time, and Chiefs like at that moment. And this is no knock on Jalen Hurts. I thought Jalen Hurts played incredible. I was even ready to be like, "Wow, this is an MVP performance from Jalen Hurts." I mean, he played. I wouldn't say obviously flawless. He let that ball come out. Um, it just boom, just lost it, and and Nick Bolton played a hell of a game. And if you know if that other call would have been ruled a fumble, where Nick Bolton also brought it into the end zone, that would have been MVP status. Uh, Patrick, if he, if if that Nick Bolton call would have been a touchdown and a fumble, Nick Bolton would be your Super Bowl MVP. Um, but you know, with that said, um, <clears throat> I think. Derek also mentioned, um, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, Derek also mentioned that they had they they had the lead at halftime. Nick Sirianni kind of kind of gave the vibes of uh, play to not lose, and right. he essentially pulled a Mike Gundy. Um, could the I mean he really did. Like if you look back at it. Uh, I mean, we're pro Big Twelve. That was that was shades of TCU versus Oklahoma State. Um, and can't be Syria, I wouldn't say he blew it. I, I wouldn't say he blew it. The Chiefs are a great team, and so are the Eagles. But they, the Eagles had their chances, and uh, you know Patrick Mahomes doing what he does played a played an all time game. Um, I, and and if if they don't call that penalty. That even goes down further as an all-time game uh, for Patrick Mahomes. Uh, Patrick was just absolutely incredible. And, you know, I I shout out Rihanna for the extended halftime to give Patrick uh, all the time he needed to make sure that ankle was right and to give him the shots or whatever he needed to make sure he was okay. Because, I mean, it it looked like he just was not bothered by that in the second half. And the way that – he played. He was just so on point. I mean, I know that there's a lot of football for Patrick Mahomes that still is to be played at this point in his career, that he's still got a long ways to go. But 
I'll look at it this way, Derek. I mean, Patrick Mahomes got two Super Bowl titles, two Super Bowl MVPs, two MVPs. He's the most talented quarterback we've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, this is this is just something something special. And I'm not going to, you know, do the the Brady comparison yet cuz we still have a ways to go, but folks, this is really just the beginning. And the other part of this too, besides this just being the beginning, um of all this greatness we're seeing from Patrick Mahomes and what he's done with the Chiefs, they did something that I don't think is getting enough talked about here, is that over the years, these Super Bowl champion quarterbacks have either been young quarterbacks on on rookie deals or quarterbacks that were playing at a a discount of some sorts, like Tom Brady, for example. Patrick Mahomes is the fifth highest-paid quarterback in the NFL right now. At the time he signed it, it was a record-breaking deal, too, and he's going to get paid a lot of money over the next several years here. Credit to Brett, Brett Veach and company. They cracked the code where you could pay the quarterback and still build a championship roster. Moving on from Tyreek Hill and all that, they still were able to put this together. I mean, uh, this is this is something else. I mean, the, the Chiefs are, are not going away anytime soon. I mean, between Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs both, Derek, this is just the beginning, it feels like. Well, and 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 to kind of piggyback off what, what Thomas said, and I mean, the, the biggest thing about Sirianni is Patrick Mahomes is – is the unicorn. He is the generational talent. He does things every game that you see. And you're like, I've never seen that before. And he's unbelievable. There's not enough superlatives to describe the way that he plays. When you play Patrick Mahomes, you have, if you choose that you are going to be aggressive, you have to be aggressive. The whole game, you cannot pick and choose when you're going to be aggressive. You have to have the pedal down the entire time because that's the way you need to you you have to win or lose against him because you know ultimately 10 points in the super bowl 24 points in the playoffs it does not matter this guy is capable of anything excluding when he didn't have an offensive line in the super bowl and i still say that's his best performance because of the fact that he had guys two guys drop touchdowns that dropped right in their hands um that game against the bucks you cannot let up on your aggressiveness when you are playing Patrick Mahomes. You have to try to keep the accelerator down. And I think in the second half, Nick Sirianni did that. And the Chiefs this year had the third most snaps played by rookies. They won the Super Bowl. Yeah. The teams that had the first and second most snaps played by rookies this year are picking one and two in the NFL draft in Kansas City in two and a half months. This was an unbelievable job of roster construction that Brett Veach did because he had a plan. He had a process of, look, when Patrick is very cheap, this is how we're going to spend money. This is how we're going to do stuff and construct a roster and put a lot of talent around him. And we'll trade draft picks and get guys and give out those big contracts. But once he starts to get expensive, we're going to have to make a trade that might hurt And no matter how much we love the player or want the player to be here, you cannot sway from the process, which is exactly what Brett Veach said when he decided to trade Tyreek Hill. They wanted to keep Tyreek Hill. They offered him $24 million a year, and Tyreek said he wanted 30. And that was the part when the Chiefs said, sorry, we're out. And they got five draft picks for him 
And, you know, they have had an unbelievable last two draft classes. I mean, look at how many guys start for this team, for the Chiefs that started in the Super Bowl that have been drafted the last two years. Your starting center, uh, Creed Humphrey. Uh, your starting right guard, Trey Smith, sixth round pick. Nick Bolton, scoop and score, could have been Super Bowl MVP had he had that other score. Trent McDuffie, Joshua Williams, Jalen Watson, all guys taken this year in the draft. George Karloftis, Sky Moore scored a touchdown. Um, you know, Brian Cook, there's so many other guys. Isaiah Pacheco, seventh round pick, scored a touchdown and was the team's leading rusher. Like the, the Chiefs are young. And they're, 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 they've got the best player in the league. It's unbelievable what this team could accomplish over the next couple of years. Tom, let me ask you about the Eagles. Uh, you know, the Eagles, they came very close. Um, Jalen Hurts, I felt, left everything out in the line, made the mistake with that fumble there. To, to me, like, you know, it was an incredible season they had. They took a huge step up from what they were last year. Um but even with that said, I mean, the, the thing that you mentioned Sirianni, what about that that front seven? This was a historically good pass rush. They had 16 more sacks than any other team in the league this year and did not get a single sack on Patrick Mahomes in that game there. To me, like, you had two weeks and the defensive game plan was just atrocious. I mean, like... The, the, the fact that they did not play better, I mean, I'm fully of the belief the Chiefs won this game. It, it was the Chiefs winning, not the Eagles losing and giving it away to them. But the Eagles were were clearly not prepared. They, they, they gave Vic Fangio, you know, a contract for two weeks just to scout the Chiefs' offense, and they had no results to show for it of how to slow down Patrick Mahomes. That pat, pat, pass rush was just a total fraud, Tom. You know, I don't think it was a total fraud. Uh, I'll tell you what. I thought it was weird that they brought in Vic Fangio. I thought the Eagles, and, and I'm I'm probably not the only one that would say this, I thought the Eagles focused on more of the offensive game plan on how they could maximize what they could get um, because there were times that they, like, that Eagles front line is incredible. Um, there were times that they just literally forced their will um, against the Chiefs. And, you know, it turned out that turnover was very costly and uh, didn't end up working out in their favor very well. <clears throat> and, I mean, by all means, I mean, they – they those offensive linemen moved some weight, right? I mean, they were – they were pushing all game. I mean, the Chiefs literally could not stop them whatsoever. Um, and the defense, I think, it, it felt like they were like, okay, well, we'll be okay. You know, we'll be all right. It's not that big of a deal. Um, we'll, you know, we can slow them down enough that if we focus enough on offense, we should score more points. Um, yeah. And then obviously all of a sudden it's like, whoops, just kidding. Uh, the Chiefs' defense can't really stop us, which is funny that you mentioned the sack total because I believe the Chiefs had one and the Eagles had none. And the one that the Chiefs ended up getting um, was either Chris Jones or Frank Clark running. Um, I guess they ran 
Um, excuse me, sorry. They ran Jalen Hurts out of bounds. I guess it counted as a sack. Um, yeah. But other than I mean, there was no really movement on the defensive line on any other side. The defensive line, which was supposed to be Philly strength, didn't end up doing anything for them. So I think that was a miss on their part. And and even with with Mahomes having a bad uh you know, having a bad ankle, they still, you know, didn't end up slowing him down. So uh, I think that was a huge difference where I think Philly might have uh, counted their chickens before they hatched, so to speak. Yeah, I think you might have it right there. Um, I think all with the ahead, Niners about when, you know, Brandon Ayuk and Debo Samuel said, had we not lost our quarterback in Brock Purdy, we were going to expose a lot of things about that Eagles defense. And I think the things that the Niners receivers were talking about, Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy discovered. Yeah, I think you, I think you're right about that, uh, Derek. You were at the parade. Uh, for those that don't know, what, what was the uh, parade like at uh, the celebration in Kansas City? Uh, you, uh, I may be going to uh, Wing House here, but you went to the OG, the uh, the OG uh, Twin Peaks, right? That's right. You know, uh, <laughs> each scenic views, but yeah, no, the parade was awesome. It was great. Um, you know, there were 30 some odd years of my life where I thought that I would never get to see the Chiefs play in a Super Bowl, win a Super Bowl. And here we go for the second time in four years. You know, we we all got to experience and, and have a parade. And it was unbelievable. It was not as cold as it was three years ago. Thank God. Um, there was still a lot of excitement. I think there were more people at Union Station this time than there were um the, the previous time after they beat the Niners. But that being said, it was a little more toned down, at least like Tyler, if you remember like the drinking that um, was going on between the players, like Travis was under control until he got and did his speech. Um, and, <laughs> you know, they, they weren't going as crazy as they, as they had the previous year. Um, but there was a lot more fan interaction. A lot more of the guys were getting off of the bus, off of the buses, going, interacting, taking photos, doing stuff with um, with the fans. I think the highlight was Chris Jones um, smoking a cigar on top of a golf cart um, for about five or ten minutes while the parade was going on. That was very interesting. Chris just went over and sat on a golf cart and sat on the top of it and was smoking a cigar. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I love all I mean, of that. Yeah, it was, um, you know, the, 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 I've, I've told people over the years, you know, as great as the Royals want, run was in 2014 and 2015, and that was awesome. Like, don't get me wrong, it was great. This is a Chiefs town. It always has been and it always will be. And there's just a deep-rooted connection between the organization and the fans and the love that, you know, the Chiefs kingdom has because you know we're 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 not a super small town, but you know we're a town in the Midwest that yeah that doesn't always get the respect that you would think that it, it deserves, and everybody thinks that Kansas City is in is in is in Kansas when it's in Missouri. That's where the Chiefs play, and you know they've got the best player on the planet and the best football team in the world, and you know it's just it 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 doesn't. I'm not going to say it means more. It just it hits differently being from here and being born and raised and being able to be around this to see how far they've come over, you know, a lot of people's lifetime. 
you feel like more like family. I tell Jones this all the time with the Spurs. Yes. Yeah. Like the Spurs, I, I, I've been to San Antonio and seen him there, but I've never been there for a championship. But just the fact that it's small market and that's what the, the city's built around. Yeah. It does. I You say it doesn't mean more. I think it does mean more. I think yeah. it means a lot more. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that the, the interaction with the fans was more. And I think that's for a reason. Something that, you know, obviously I'm a Rams fan. And last year, I, I Jones saw me. I cried. But it wasn't for the city of L.A. It was for the <laughs> grew up. It was for the team I grew up rooting in, in right. St. also small market. So yeah. it felt like closer, um, you know, the way that you're feeling. Like I, I felt a lot closer than than maybe some other people did in L.A. Where it, it seems yeah. like it's you can't get you can't get that close. No, um, and I think like, it's all like Jones has said. Like you can't go anywhere during chief season on a Friday when it's red Friday and not see 95% of the population wearing chief stuff. Like, I don't think you that. I don't, I don't think you see that everywhere else with every other fan base. Like, you know, it's red Friday. That means something. The chiefs play on Sunday. You wear your red on Friday. And, and if you're not wearing red, like there better be a good reason. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's different, uh, for sure. Tom, Tom, Derek, something special. Chiefs are Super Bowl champions once again. Uh, we'll have more when uh, Coach Bo joins us coming up later on and uh, get his thoughts on uh, this Super Bowl run. But uh, guys, uh, I want to want to talk some uh, Big Twelve stuff here. Let's start on the realignment front, and then we'll move over and talk some hoops here. Um, Oklahoma and Texas officially leaving the Big Twelve a year early meaning that this upcoming season is their last year in the Big 12, and then next year it will be just the 12 members that uh, are the future of this league. It does come with some caveats. The Michigan-Texas game in 2024 had to be moved from Austin to Ann Arbor, and there's some potential stuff with OU that has to be worked out too. But nonetheless, they are gone, and, you know – it, it comes at a at a discount of some sorts. Originally, Oklahoma and Texas were going to have to pay an exit fee at their original end date of $80 million. Both of them are now going to pay just $50 million and leave a year early. Derek, twofold. Uh, I'm glad that they're moving on, that we can just live our lives and look forward to the future of this conference. If Oklahoma and Texas don't want to be here, I mean – Let's move on without them. But two, you know, the, the $50 million thing of taking less money than they were initially owed, there was reports, speculation out there that that was what ESPN was kind of pushing the door, kind of leaning in, telling them like, hey, let them go, let them do their thing. To me, I hope that there's some some backdoor dealings or some good karma coming the Big 12's way of letting – Oklahoma and Texas off easy. Maybe that's a a good sign for the future of when it comes to expansion and making this whole thing work out that ESPN is on their side of some sorts here. And we already know they got a new TV deal coming with ESPN and Fox. To me, that's what I hope comes out of this is uh, that it yeah. works out in, in that way. Yeah, that's that's what I hope too. I mean, we talked about last week how 
I would have said, look, you got to pay the exit fee, but you can pay it over the course of two years. Um, so, you know, you could pay 40 million each year, but obviously they settled on the 50 million um, and they're going to leave uh, a, a year sooner. I think it's obvious that neither one of those two schools want to, to be here. Um, I think it's going to be funny because it's going to be a struggle, I think, for both of them. Um when they go to the SEC, uh, I'm not sold on Steve Sarkeesian. I know he's doing a good job getting some good recruiting classes. Um, you know, I think time will tell on that. Um, who knows how long Saban's going to be at Alabama? Um, you know, with Kirby Smart and Josh Heupel and those guys at Georgia and Tennessee and other places, I, I mean, the SEC is just going to be tough. I, I don't know that Oklahoma and Texas fans are going to be – they're not satisfied with eight and four seasons right now in the Big 12 – it might be that or worse. Tyler, you and I have talked and discussed, um, you know, I'm not a big Brent Venables fan. I, I think you saw things in year one that have kind of shown it's not going to work. I mean, even um, Barry Switzer came out this week saying he's concerned about their move. Yeah, it, 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 exactly. Um, I have worries, too, on the side of the Big 12 because I think the new commissioner, because he's an East Coast guy, and doesn't have the background in college football the way that a Bob Bowlesby does, that worries me in terms of I think he's going to leave a lot of money on the table at times and miss opportunities that are going to pass him by, whether it be bringing in schools like in Oregon or someone else um, out west. I think they did a good job getting the four schools that they're adding that will be the, the Big 12, you know, starting after Oklahoma and, and Texas leave. But I, I just I, – I, I don't – if I'm Oklahoma and Texas, I don't know why you would want to leave earlier because I think you're just going to go to the SEC and have a train ran through you, and you're going to see how different it is down there, and it's going to take a while for them to catch up. I mean, like, look at it. Like, the University of Missouri has been in the SEC for over a decade, and they've really only had two seasons when they looked good playing SEC football that were – successful seasons and that was when florida georgia and tennessee were all down in the sec east that's not going to happen again right right so you could uh, have stayed for a chance at more stability yes i'd see i you you did mention brett yormack i am so far a believer in him he looks like a headhunter to me but i might be wrong i might be i may be wrong um he, he, he seems about your mark, Tom, is that, and you guys know, I mean, we've been fans of this league, you know, forever, is this league has always been reactionary, not, yes. not actionary. And this is the first commissioner in the history of this conference that is trying to make power moves, that's being aggressive. I mean, he came in with a, a list. First was to get a new TV deal. He got that done. And you look at the Pac-12, they're struggling to get a TV deal still. Jumped the line, got that done. Took care of the Oklahoma-Texas deal. And now box number three is expand out west. Tom, he's accomplished everything he set out to do at this point. Now it's about finishing the job here. Um, I hope he can get it done and, and get some of those West Coast schools. I think so. Like I said, I think he's a headhunter. He's, he's coming in with the, uh, you know, if you're not like – Bowlesby, I think, just felt like, oh, okay, I'm getting a paycheck. We do what we need to do. Let the rest of, you know, let everybody else take care of it. I'm just here as a figurehead. Your Mac has come in, and I don't want to be, I don't want to 
jack him off too much, right? Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I'm being serious. But he, he he's coming in to from what I've seen, he, he's like a headhunter. He's like almost got a personal vendetta of like a, a mute me if you need to, fuck you, pay me type vibe. That's what I like about him so far. He's 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 got a chip on his shoulder for some reason. I can't figure it out yet. I think part of it is too is that he is he is always trying to think ahead. I mean, we can remember at, at, at Big 12 Media Days, I believe it was Big 12 Media Days in, in, in 2021, when Bob Bowlesby said, oh, no, there's no talk about expansion. Oklahoma and Texas are happy. And behind his back, Oklahoma and Texas are negotiating to go to the SEC. Like, yeah, that's like, what he's going on. He's stealing a paycheck. I, I have an idea here. So tell me what you guys think of this. So we've heard that the Pac-12 negotiations for a TV deal are going bad. Came out on Wednesday that CBS and Warner Brothers Discovery, which owns Turner Sports now, um, have bowed out, said we're done. And Fox already said no, too. So you're left with ESPN and Amazon, who only want one game a week for for each of those networks. So the Pac-12 is in desperation mode they sent out the letter this past week saying they're on a united front and all this yada 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 but we've heard reports that arizona state's upset these other schools and they're looking at smu and san diego state who i mean nothing against those schools but if that's your solution i mean you're in you're in deep shit i mean let's let's be honest here if that's what you're looking to be your saving grace go to that schools you're in trouble so my theory is, guys, that the way that the the timing works out of the contracts ending in the Pac-12, of when their deal ends, and then getting Oklahoma and Texas out early, a year early, I think, Derek, that Brett Yormark is trying to pave the way for maybe even as early as next season, not, not this upcoming season, but the next to be the year of a brand new Big 12 front with Pac-12 schools included. I think that you move on from Oklahoma and Texas after this year and you bring in Pac-12 schools and you move forward. I could see that happening at, at this rate. Yeah, I mean, I could I could definitely see something like that happening. I, I would be intrigued if they were able to get like Arizona, Arizona State, Oregon. Those, those three would, I think – really bring some brands to to the Big 12. Um, and not only that, you're pushing your product out west, too, um, and expanding your footprint, which would be great. Here's one thing I was saying about Tom, too, on this, is, um, you know, everybody's with the Big 12 has focused on the four corner schools. Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, and Colorado is kind of the, the focus of sorts. Um, and then Oregon and Washington – it's been like that's been like the golden prize, but um, always been the reach to get. In theory, if you get the four corner schools, and Oregon and Washington don't get that Big Ten invite that they want, and it looks like that they're probably not going to. I mean, aren't you going to go ahead and get Oregon and Washington anyway? I mean, if you're Oregon and Washington and the four corner schools leave. Why the hell would you stay in whatever's left of that conference at that point? I think, Tom, now, based on the way the Big Ten has kind of shut the door on West Coast expansion, at least for now, it looks that way. 
if you can pull Oregon and Washington, or if you can get the four corner schools, I think you can end up with all six. I think you really could. And I, at that point, I think it's easy pickings. Um, I will say, I don't know if you saw came, came out on Wednesday um, that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that <clears throat> Alabama, or not Alabama, excuse me, Ohio State canceled their home and home with, I believe, Oregon. Uh, or they canceled their home and home with um, a Pac-12 school and called it called it over. Um, so I think I think you could see some of that um, happening more after these TV deals got canceled. Yeah, yeah, that's something to think about. We'll uh, we'll see what happens, but it's uh, it's very fascinating. I mean, like to, to end on this, and then we'll we'll talk some Big Twelve hoops here, Derek. I'm put it this way: I tweeted this out on Wednesday morning that you know when you look at the history of the Big Twelve conference, this has been a league that you know, has, has lost several teams and was fighting for survival after Oklahoma and Texas left and nobody wanted the hateful eight or the little 12, whatever you want to call them. You know, the, there was no takers for them to move to other conferences. And then they add in, you know, the four schools uh, that they did, you know, the three from the American and then BYU. And, you know, the, the, didn't work out of, of a merger between the Pac-12 and Big 12 at the time. You know, it's a it's a underdog story here. There, It's an island of misfit toys, you know? I mean, the, the conference is scattered all over the place. And for them to survive and now be in this position to potentially take some Pac-12 schools, to get this new TV contract, to have a bright future going forward, th- this is – even if you don't have a dog in the fight, if you're not a Big 12 football fan, I find this new league, Derek, and may, I think even Oklahoma and Texas fans even probably feel this way about the new Big 12. I think this new Big 12 is easy to root for. I think, you know, if if they're the – if we're trying to find heroes and villains here, the new Big 12, these are the good guys. The Pac-12, you know, and their shenanigans and, you know, the, the just garbage stuff we've heard from George – Kliakoff, their commissioner, they're the bad guys here. The Big 12, they're, they're the ones to root for, that they come out in this situation, they come out better, survive, and and make this thing work. To me, I think it's easy to root on the Big 12 through this process. I think it's going to be funner to watch. I think it's going to be a better product. Um, you know, I, I, I'm excited for it. The one school I think that, that probably might kind of become the – the uh, the redheaded stepchild is Cincinnati. Um, I really do believe them losing Luke Fickle to Wisconsin is going to hurt them. Uh, I agree. I, I I think that they're going to be the team that comes into this conference that's going to have to make the biggest adjustment. Um, that taking that next step up from the AAC to the Big Twelve is a completely you know, different jump and they're going to have to figure that out. So I'm very interested to see how, how everybody else goes. I mean, BYU plays an independent schedule. They play other teams. So um, I'm not too worried about them. Um, You know, Houston, we'll see how long Dana Holgerson lasts um, down there, but you know, we all know it's going to be a fun time uh, to uh, get to see Gus Malzahn in this league. Yeah. Um, Guys, uh, let's talk the big 12 hoops front just real quick. Uh, before we uh, finish off this uh, this first segment of the show, 
Derek, Big 12 standings, Kansas, Texas, and Baylor, three-way tie at nine and four. They're all ranked in the top ten. Got a big game between Baylor and Kansas coming up on, on Saturday. Do you think those three have separated themselves from the rest of the league now? Yeah. Yeah, I I do, and I honestly think it's going to be a two horse race. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to come down to Kansas and Texas. I think Texas is the most talented team, talent wise in the Big Twelve. Um, I mean, you see nights where you know Joe Yesifu or anybody who comes off Kansas's bench looks really good against Oklahoma. Looks really good. Ernest Uday does against um, Oklahoma, and I do think the light has come on for him. But I think the inconsistency that you get from Kansas's bench is what could give you a little hesitation and lean more towards Texas winning this league by a game. Um, you know, Kansas still has to go to Austin. Um, but I do think that it's going to come down to, to Kansas and Texas. And, you know, I've been saying it. Everybody wanted to question and say things about Bill Self during that three-game losing streak of what is he doing? He doesn't know this and da-da-da-da-da. And then they go on the road and they beat Kentucky and, you know, they've won their last three and I believe they've won four out of their last five. They're doing good. And you can start to see Tyler, obviously I know from your time in Lawrence and we've talked about it, he's starting to mold the team the way that he wants. You can see how this roster is coming and how it's going to be used when you get to these games right now in February and March and what it's going to look like in the NCAA tournament and who he believes he can count on and who he's going to use the most. That's where I edge to Kansas on potentially winning this league is because they do have the best coach in the country. And, uh, you know, if Texas still had, had Chris Beard, I, I think I would feel differently, but I have all the confidence in Bill Self over the coach at Texas. Yeah, um, I think you can't discount Baylor. They've won 10 out of their last 11. Um, You know, they'd look better straight up than Kansas did when they met the first meeting a few weeks back. Tom, of those three, who do you like best between Kansas, Texas, and Baylor? You know, Tech, I believe, just beat uh, Texas. Grant, I believe it was at Tech. It was, yeah, Monday night. Yep, KU looked pretty strong. Um, the bias in me tells me that I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, KU got the benefit of the doubt with the refs in Stillwater. Uh, on my double digits, come on now. I Brady, mean, I mean, 20 come on. points. Listen, I rooted for your Chiefs. The least you can do is say the refs were homers. But with that being said, <laughs> I do like. I do like KU. They, you know, I mean, if I'm going to put money down on one of those teams, it's it's going to be KU. Even if KU had faltered last night, or I'm sorry, <clears throat> Tuesday night against Oklahoma State, I'm still going to pick KU. I'm going to pick KU until they prove me wrong for a couple years, right? Uh, like, they need to fall off a lot more um, for me to – to say, you know what, mm, probs not. The the one thing I wonder, Derek, uh, as far as like those separation, like I, I think, you know, we mentioned Kansas, Texas, and Baylor, those top three teams in the league. The we saw last time around, you know, Baylor looked better than Kansas, although that was a couple weeks ago. Heading into this week's matchup, like 
Kansas just doesn't have any bigs, right? I mean, they basically play five guards is what their offense pretty much is. We've seen Baylor. They have size, you know, Flo Thamba, these other guys here. Um, Is Bill – is Bill figuring it out? Can they can they make a deep run? Can they win this league? Can they go far in March without having a strong front court presence compared to what Baylor has, for example? I believe so because this is a guard oriented game, and you know Bill has finally embraced that um, as he's gone away from the too high. You know, 2016, 2017 was when we saw him make that shift to where he stopped playing two bigs and stopped running so much high low. He still runs the dribble, uh, you know, dribble weave action and everything else. But that team that had Frank Mason, who was a national player of the year that year, Devontae Graham, Svi McKay Luke, and then Josh Jackson at the four and Landon Lucas at the five. Um, you know, you've seen him kind of embrace that. Bill's made two final fours and won a national championship playing, you know, four guards, four around one. Um, KJ is obviously the best athlete and the most athletic dude on the team. You're, you're just hoping that you would be able to find a big, whether it be a Zach Clements, a Zuby Ejiofor, or right now who it looks like Ernest Uday. You can tell Bill believes in him the most out of any of these young big men. Um, and, 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 and I, you can see it. You can see what the flashes are that Bill sees from him. My biggest thing is, what contributions other than Uday who can come off the bench and play for you are you going to get on an going to get in an NCAA tournament game when it's the Sweet 16 or when it's you know the Elite Eight? Take for example last year against Providence in the Sweet 16. Ochayabaji, Christian Brown could not do anything. Those two guys were NBA first round draft picks. It was Remy Martin who sparked them off of the bench. Right. Do have a guy like that. I don't think it's Joe Yesifu. I want to see MJ Rice stay healthy and see what he could be because I think he could be a guy who, if he just comes in and plays with energy and effort, he's going to make them a lot better. But I think we see when Dewan Harris is aggressive, Kansas is a totally different team. Kansas is 20 and 0 this year when Dewan Harris scores four or more points. They don't need him to take 12 shots a game. Right. Need him to take the shots that they give him and try to knock some down because that makes them have to guard him. That ends up on the scouting report. And so, you know, that's what people don't realize is different from last year's team to this year's team. You obviously had Christian Brown and Ochai Abaji who could get you a bucket at any time. You had David McCormick who could turn over any shoulder down in the post and get his um, as a big guy, as much you know, frustration and, and everything that David brought in his time in um, at, at Kansas. Then you had Jalen Wilson, who was that fourth option. DeWan Harris didn't have to do anything offensively when when he was there. And yeah, had Remy Martin as the spark plug off the bench. Yeah. A couple more notes and then uh, we'll move on uh, real quick. Stock up, stock down, Derek. Um, Kansas State falling off a little bit. Uh, you know, come back down to earth the last uh, week or so. They're now down to seven and six in league play, 19 and seven overall. Oklahoma State had been playing really good up until their loss to Kansas. I think they are a much improved team. I like the duo of Bryce Thompson and Caleb Boone, but they don't have much beyond that. Um, Texas Tech starting to play some better ball. Big win against Texas the other night. They're 14 and 12. 
their tournament hopes looked like they were shattered a couple weeks ago. All of a sudden, if they start to win some games here, we got to bring Texas Tech back into the equation. What do you think about kind of those teams, uh, teams that stock up and, and stock down there the rest of the league? I think the team that has the most stock up that is 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 Oklahoma State. I think that even I think they're pretty. I like how they, they their offense is better offensively without um, without Avery Anderson. Um, I thought he tried to do a lot of one on one type things um, and wouldn't go wouldn't get his shots through the flow of the offense. Um, I I think Texas Tech. I need to see more from them these next couple of weeks to see if they're gonna you know, make the tournament. I, I think K-State is, is, is figuring out, you know, the big 12 is tough. Like, you know, you, you can't, the, your, your Super Bowl is not in January when you beat Kansas by one in overtime in Manhattan, you still had an entire gauntlet of big 12 games that, that you had to run through. But Jerome Tame is a first year head coach. He's got growing pains, even though he was Scott Drew's lead assistant for so long he's still the first time he's calling the shots on his own and he's got to figure out stuff on his own. Tom, uh, we'll end on this uh, rumors in Norman about Porter Moser being linked to the Notre Dame job. I'll be honest. I think Porter Moser's, Porter Moser's a very good coach and we saw what he did at Loyola. He's kind of been underwhelming at Oklahoma. They haven't been bad. They just haven't been, you know, really good by any means. You know, they're, they're, they haven't taken that next step that they that they probably should have by now. Um, with that said, if I'm Joe Castiglione in, in that Oklahoma program, Tom, if if Notre Dame or whoever wants to pay the money to buy Porter Moser, by all means, take him. I mean, I'm not I'm not fighting you if you want to take Porter Moser and I get another shot to go find a better head coach. I still oh, think yeah. Porter. <laughs> I still think Porter could figure it out and still could do a good job at OU, but I'm not going to break the bank to try to give him an extension or whatever, try to fight to, to keep him with the results they're showing right now. No, absolutely not. It's not like he's Chris Beard post-beating his wife, right? Uh, I mean, let's be real. He's, he's not some game changer. I mean, I like Porter Moser, but OU, uh, time and time again, has shown that they're best when they have a – you know what, and maybe I'm playing stupid here saying this, but OU always thrives on that all-star type talent, right? It's always Trey Young. It was it was um, Blake, Blake Griffin. Griffin. Yeah. Taj, Taj, you know, Taj Gray, Kevin Bookout. You know, we haven't really seen that. Or, oh, Buddy Heald. We haven't really seen that talent come through OU, not yet. They they usually get one every four or five years. Um, yeah, if they want to pay him, pay him. I don't think he's some, you know, he's not some somebody that's like, oh wow, yeah, we can't we can't live without him type guy. He's a great coach, but he's not somebody you got to shell out stupid money for. Right. Yeah, I'm with you. Um... I think Porter could still turn this thing around and and do some great things at OU, but he's not somebody that they just have to absolutely do whatever it takes to keep as far as that goes. We'll see uh, how that ultimately plays out. Uh, still more to come here in the Jones Report. Uh, got Coach Bo later on. Uh, got plenty of coverage from Daytona with David Starr, Matt Tiff, Adam Alexander. We'll get to all those guys 
a big show ahead. You will want to stay with us. We're just getting started here on the Jones Sport. Don't go anywhere. Joining us now on the Jones Sport this week, it is, uh, I think, year 10 or 11 uh, that he's been a part of this show with us. Uh, our buddy Adam Alexander from FS1 and Fox Sports joins us uh, here from Daytona. Adam, always a pleasure. And uh, another run at this uh, back in Daytona. How many years is it for you now out here? I started coming to Daytona. The first time I came to Speed Weeks and covered the Daytona 500 for MRN Radio was 2002. Okay. When Ward Burton won. So, you know, that's been 21 years ago. So I, I, I haven't been here every year since because sometimes I would be in studio, wouldn't come to Daytona. Uh, I had a child born in February one year, so I missed that year's Speed Weeks. But off and on for 21 years. Man, and uh, seen a few things in that stretch, I imagine. It's pretty incredible. I was thinking about it today and doing some prep work for the Xfinity race tomorrow. Jeb Burton is, is driving, of course, uh, in that 27 car in the Xfinity race. His father, Ward, won the first Daytona 500 that I was ever a part of for MRN Radio. So that's a memory that I will always hold. And, and now you start seeing these second-generation drivers. And, right. you know, we had Jimmy Johnson on the other day uh, as a part of our Media Day coverage. And I... I basically covered Jimmy's entire career. I remember when Jimmy won his first Xfinity race at Chicago and was signing with Hendrick Motorsports to drive the 48. And I'm like, my gosh, I don't know that this guy's ready. And obviously I know a lot about it because he won over 80 races and seven championships, right? So It all uh, worked out. Yeah, I mean, you, you have seen, like, you've seen Kevin Harvick, you know, grow up from what happened here in 2001 and him taking over the, three, uh, the 29, you know, taking over – for Dale Earnhardt and, and what he's made of his career. Now he's retiring, so it's somewhat surreal to have seen the paths of these drivers and really to have seen it from beginning to end. Yeah, unbelievable. And uh, now here we are, the 75th season of NASCAR racing. For for people that may not follow the sport and may be unaware, how, how big a deal is this to to reach this mark and what does this season coming up entail i don't know why i've I've always felt like as a sports fan and and i do follow the other sports but but i've always felt like nascar was more in tune with its history and its root its roots than any other sport And, and that's not to say that other sports do not celebrate their history every sport has a hall of fame and they do reflect back on what's happened in the past but to me NASCAR has stayed very connected to its roots and its foundation more so than any other sport. And this was a thought I had. Here, here we are at Daytona. First race here for the 500 1959 won by Lee Petty. His you know, son Richard goes on to win the most Daytona 500s ever, 200 wins, seven Daytona 500s, a seven-time champion. He's now partnered on a car from an ownership perspective with Jimmy Johnson, who's won seven championships. Ty Gibbs is running in the Cup Series now as a 20-year-old. His grandfather, of course, started Joe Gibbs Racing, and we know their story. It's all connected, and it will stay connected for many years to come because of those stories I just told. So that, that to me, is, is the neat thing, is that you truly can connect literally day one from, from what, to what we have right now. It's unbelievable. Uh, and, and with that, Jimmy did make the Daytona 500 and will be in that 84 car. How big of a deal is that to have him and Travis Pastrana and Connor Daly, some of these guys we don't see every week in this race? The two big ones for me coming down here when you look at those open cars were Travis Pastrana and obviously Jimmy Johnson. And, you know, it would have been rough for, for Jimmy personally and for that organization, but, but I think industry-wide if he didn't make the 500. 
And, and so I know it was a big sigh, really, for many to see him qualify in the other night on speed, and, and uh, that, that's good. And Travis Pastrana is such a unique personality and has got yeah. such global reach because of all of his experiences and all the things that he's been able to accomplish. So he was another one that was great to get in. You know, Connor Daly obviously has got a tremendous connection to IndyCar and is very diverse, and so that, that's a nice bonus too. Uh, but, but I felt like the big ones were Jimmy Johnson and Travis Pastrana, and, you know, you open up your reach, and it's more stories to tell when we go green here on Sunday. Speaking of stories, you have Kevin Harvick retiring at the end of this year. Um, you know, some of the newer teams that have come along. And what, what, what is the big headlines that stand out to you entering 2023? Well, I, part of it to me is can you repeat what we saw in 2022 from a parity perspective? You know, a year ago we came here and we were all selling, blindly selling, this new car is going to create parity and these smaller teams are going to have a chance to win and on and on and on. And I'm not saying that that was not something that people really believed. Right. But the reality is we didn't know that was going to happen. And, right. and no one ever would have believed it was going to happen at the level that it happened with 19 winners and five first-timers. And some of these organizations that we weren't sure if they'd be able to keep their head above water, right. not only kept their head above water, they won, made the playoffs, and and in the case of Trackhouse, put Ross Chastain in the championship four. So one of the storylines I'll be watching is, can we repeat in 2023 what we did in 2022 from a parity perspective? And, and then the obvious is, what will Kevin Harvick's final year be like? Yeah. How will Kyle Busch perform in year one at, at RCR? Can he finally get off the night and win the Daytona 500? Kind of the last box for him to check. Those are some of the items that I would have on my list of, of items to watch. How do you think Kyle's going to do uh, over at RCR and, and that team picking up from where they left off of a strong 2022 campaign? Can Kyle keep that going here in 2023? There appears to be some pressure, I, I think. And and I say that, and, and maybe there will be a lot more focus on him now and how he performs because some of the pressure this year might have been on Ross Chastain, who's in a contract year. Daniel Suarez, who's in a contract year. Alex Bowman, who's in a contract year. But before we even put the cars on track, all those guys have signed extensions. So right. we're no longer going to be talking about them as free agents. And, and so there's less distraction out there, which means more focus on a guy like Kyle Busch, who's in a new situation, and what can he do? And, you know, he, he won last year at Bristol on the dirt, as we know. But if you look at that 18, they performed really well down the stretch. Tyler Reddick had an incredible second half of the year. All of that means that expectations are going to be higher for Kyle Busch. And, and I, I believe he will live up to those. I really do. I, 15 years is a long time to do anything oh, right yeah. now, much less drive a race car at one organization. To me, this has re-energized him. It's my understanding Austin Dillon was the guy that wanted him to come over there, which speaks volumes. So I'm anxiously awaiting what their performance will be like, but I anticipate Kyle Busch will have a pretty good year. Who are the guys you're uh, watching for this weekend? We had a big upset last year with Austin Centric getting it done. Who are the guys to uh, watch for to get it done uh, here at Daytona? You can't come here without watching Denny Hamlin, right? Yeah. I mean, he's won it three times, and he's in it every year, and, and I just feel like he has got such a tremendous feel for the draft. H having said that, his numbers, and not that you can put a lot into numbers when it comes to this type of racing, yeah. but his numbers were compromised some last year with this car at these types of racetracks. So sure. I, I, I would hesitate to say he's truly the favorite um, because there's so many on that list, but you've got to put him on the short list of contenders. So Denny is one. 
I like what I see out of Joey Logano. Joey's a really good drafter, and, and he obviously won his dual race last night. He'll be a threat. Chase Elliott, to me, is someone to, to keep an eye on. Uh, really, the Hendrick cars across the board because we know they have speed. Yeah. And if I were to put another one out there, maybe a, a little bit of a sleeper, I would probably say uh, Brad Keselowski. When you look at what he did here last year, I, I, I just feel like the time is right for him to win. I, I'm surprised yeah. it didn't happen a year ago. Obviously, they won as an organization with Chris Buescher getting it done at Bristol, but something tells me Brad will uh, be a big player this weekend. You mentioned about pressure with Kyle Busch earlier. One guy that comes to mind when you talk pressure is Martin Truex, coming off a disappointing season last year, and he's got a chip on his shoulder of sorts, won the clash, still has yet to win this race too. Uh, what, what's your expectations for Martin Truex? Do you think he has bounced back here this year? After what I saw at the clash, my expectations are high, and he performed really well, as did all the Toyotas. So I would say the short track program in the Toyota camp that struggled a bit, especially in comparison to where we would anticipate it would be uh, last year with the next-gen car, they seem to have really made some changes there that have, that have helped their operation. And, and we'll see going forward. Not, not that the clash equals everything, but, but I think it was a nice foundation for them. And, and you know what? You don't get anything for winning the clash as far as points and locked into the playoffs and all that. But Martin needed a win. Yeah. And he won. And so to me, while there is pressure, and I agree with you, some of that has probably been relieved because they got that win, and, and now right. we'll see what they do going forward. How's your golf game these days? Uh, you hit the, the tees uh, while you're in town? Yeah, I did. I, I played up at TPC, the Valley course, not the stadium course, and uh, it was okay. I wasn't embarrassed. Okay. I had rental clubs. I, I like using rental clubs because then you have a good excuse when things don't go well. So that was uh, – but it, it was fine. It was good. And, great to get out weather's been unbelievable so i'm enjoying every second of that you know uh you're a big college sports guy like i am and and uh you know we're here in not too far from orlando i was thinking of ucf joining the big 12 next year and everything gotta ask you what's your thoughts on where realignment and everything's headed right now in that that front well it's crazy and you know i'm a big 10 guy i grew up in big 10 country and I, i remember how ludicrous it felt when penn state came to the big 10 so then you start adding the, you know, the, the Rutgers in Maryland to the world. And you're like, what, what, what's going on here? And, you know, you, now you move on down the line. And UCLA and USC in a Big Ten is just the most unthinkable thing ever. But that's what's happening. And, and now, you know, I have a daughter that's at the University of Tennessee. Okay. So you, you're going to have Oklahoma and Texas playing in the Southeastern Conference, which is nuts. Uh, you know, the lines got blurred for a while, and, and I just feel like there are no lines, and I'm not sure where all of this ends up. And, and with all of that happening, you add in NIL, which is just a, a whole nother layer of, of crazy. So yeah, it's, it's hard to predict, but I, I've always watched sports for the competition and a good game. And I don't have near as much pride now in the conference stuff as I used to. I think because there's been so many additions, number one, and number two, I've moved around geographically, so you don't feel the impact of, I'm in the Midwest, I'm a Big Ten guy, I'm in North Carolina, I'm an ACC guy, I'm in the South, I'm an SEC person. I I just, my lines are are blurred too, and so it makes it, it really makes it a more enjoyable experience. Evansville's still in the Missouri Valley. They are still in the Missouri Valley, yes they are. I'm not sure they should be, but they are. Oh, 
you got a busy weekend ahead, right? Uh, Xfinity and truck both? It is crazy. Uh, I've, I've made more notes on more drivers, and my head's about to spin. But, yeah, uh, you know, Friday night at, at Daytona, we got the, the Craftsman Truck Race, which will be exciting, and so much good young talent there. A very diverse field when you look at the age and the background of the drivers and, and how much they've, they've won versus how little they've been on tracks like this. Uh, Xfinity Race Saturday is always a, a nice setup to the Daytona 500 on Sunday. And we got some guys doing double duty, some doing trucks and cups, some doing Xfinity and cup, uh, some doing trucks and Xfinity. And, and then, uh, of course, Sunday is what it's all about, the Great American Race, the Daytona 500, and uh, so much anticipation. I look forward to that. Adam, we'll be watching it all. Always a pleasure talking to you, catching up as we do each and every year here at Daytona. And we'll be talking again down the line. Thanks for joining us, man. It's our annual tradition. Thank yes. you, Tyler. Good to see you. Jones Report is live from Daytona International Speedway, and we are pleased to be joined by friend of the show, David Starr, my co-host on our other show, Let's Go Racing with David Starr, part of the Studio Soapbox Network. We're going to have a live show coming up from Daytona on Saturday. You won't want to miss out on that. David, uh, I talk to you every week on Let's Go Racing, but uh, it's always good to have you back on uh, the Jones Report uh, as well. How are we doing, man? Man, doing great, Tyler. Thanks for having me on the Jones Report, buddy. Just uh, here at Daytona, NASCAR 75th year season, and uh, man, for the we're here to kick off the 75th year of, of, of NASCAR racing, and uh, man, it's exciting, buddy. Tell me about that, because uh, you know, I mean, this audience more just generic sports fans, not specifically NASCAR fans, but uh, how, how big of a deal is this? The Daytona 500 is the Super Bowl of this sport. 75th season and everything uh pretty exciting isn't it and and they'll put on quite the show sunday won't they yeah no doubt about it you know 75 years of nascar racing it's just man the sport uh it's just a sport that's loved all over the world you know and uh it's you know auto racing uh professional auto racing and here in america and man just the hundreds of thousands of fans that we have across the united states and the world it's, it's, it's amazing, you know, and to celebrate the 75th year uh, this year here at the Daytona International Speedway uh, is just something special. You know, it's just, you know, so many years of great racing with great fans, great drivers and just great sponsors. And just it's just a great sport, like like all the other sports you cover, you know, but uh, yeah. it's just it's I don't know. 75 years is pretty awesome. Yeah. And for you, uh, you're back in the Xfinity Series for your 25th season in NASCAR. David, uh, tell me about this year and your expectations. What's it going to be like for you here in 2023? Man, joining the new team, Our Motorsports, with Chris Auer and, and uh, Vic Reynolds, and uh, man, driving a Chevrolet uh, Monte Carlo with, uh, you know, backing from uh, special reporter Brett Bayer and uh, Boulevard and several others. Uh, man, just looking forward to a, a great racing season. Probably going to be uh, uh one of one hopefully one of my best seasons of my career with the type of equipment we have but just exciting to to get racing man we just came off the the super bowl what a great super bowl that was and a great year of the nfl and, and now our our racing season cranks up and man the excitement we had last year with all the great racing and uh you know the crown uh, our, our champ joy logano there at uh at Phoenix International Raceway uh, uh, to to crown all the champions in NASCAR of the Truck Series and the Xfinity Series, and now we get to 
you know, start start all over again uh, for our 2023 season. And man, last year it didn't disappoint. There was a lot of drama, a lot of action, and man, just great racing throughout the United States on these great racetracks. And uh, I think 2023 will be no different. David, uh, for people that don't know, that may not understand NASCAR or whatever, what makes Daytona and Talladega so unique, uh, the great equalizer, right? I mean, guys like you and others have just as good a chance as some of the some of the big-time teams to compete and, uh, and win this weekend. Uh, I mean, this, this thing's wide open, isn't it? Especially the Cup side, the, the next-gen car really even the playing field in the Cup Series. It really did, you know, and then when you're racing at these big two and a half mile super speedways, uh, 2.6 miles at Talladega and Daytona, you know, the draft plays a big part of how we race here. It's kind of a chess game and, and you can have a card funding wise from a sponsorship standpoint, it just has half the, the budget uh, of, of a big powerhouse team. And that team has an opportunity to, to win these races at Talladega and Daytona. We call these big super speedways the great equalizer, you know, and it's a chess game. And you're trying to put yourself in a position to have good, fast race cars behind you that are they can't get around you. So they're bump drafting and they're kind of pushing you. And, you know, it opens up the opportunity to win races, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, in like like you wouldn't have at other racetracks. So we call these these super speedways, uh, the great equalizer and, uh, it makes it exciting. You know, anybody, you know, teams that are underfunded have just as good as an opportunity to the, than a powerhouse team that's really funded well. So yeah, the racing, the cars on top of each other, a lot of bump drafting gets pretty intense, but it's pretty exciting for the, for the race fans and sitting in my racing seat and looking through that windshield. It's, it's pretty intense in there. Let me ask you about some of the headlines uh, this weekend. Uh, the two notable names that qualified in Wednesday night, uh, Jimmy Johnson in his uh, return to the NASCAR Cup Series. Travis Pastrana is in. How big of a deal is that to have uh, those two guys uh, officially in the show and be a part of the big race on Sunday? Well, for Jimmy Johnson, you know, our seven-time champion of the NASCAR Cup Series, you know, he retired a couple of years ago, didn't completely retire but he went, he jumped over to the IndyCar side. He, he had a passion for IndyCar racing, open wheel racing and got to race in the Indianapolis 500 and got to, I don't know how many IndyCar races he competed in, but you know, he got to kind of fuel that passion he had for IndyCar racing. And it's exciting to see Jimmy back over here as a NASCAR race car driver and a team owner uh, in, in racing a really, it's something new for him. Cause you know, since he retired, we, uh, NASCAR came out with a new type of race car. They call it the next gen race car. And this will be Jimmy's first time to, to race a new next gen race car. So, you know, the fans and a lot of the people in the industry are kind of excited to see what his thoughts are, how he does. So it's good. It's cool having our seven time champ back competing at in the NASCAR cup series. And then you talk about Travis Pastrana, you know, he's a, he's a, uh, a superstar and, all kinds of forms of auto racing and being a daredevil and, you know, these extreme uh, racing sports that we have uh, to have him here competing for the first time uh, to make the Daytona 500 uh, is really a great Cinderella story for Travis and his racing team. So there's a lot of great stories that come out of Daytona, uh, you know, just being a part of the race and competing in the race is a big deal. And, 
And uh, so a lot of great stories, Cinderella stories that will come out of Daytona, but it's going to be a great race. Yeah. Got time for a couple more questions. Then we'll wrap up here. Uh, Kevin Harvick retiring at the end of this year. And I mean, a hall of fame career, but you look at the other guys he raced with David. I mean, the, from Dale jr. To Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson, Tony Stewart, Kyle Bush, all these others. It seems like Kevin Harvick was almost under the radar, kind of forgotten about. And even with as good a competition he had just an incredible career and he won every race here. Can, is Kevin Harvick still going to be a, a championship contender even in his final year here? Can he go out on top, you think? Well, you would hope so. You know, Kevin, he's had, you know, a storybook career and just championships and all the wins. And, uh, you know, you kind of see that era of drivers, you know, retiring out. Kevin's kind of, you know, one of the last of that era to still compete, be competing at the cup level. And, you know, as a fan of his and a friend of mine, you just, you, you hope that he can, that, you know, when he, when the, when he runs that last lap, takes the checkered flag for the final time in the last cha uh, championship race at Phoenix that, you know, he has three or four wins and maybe a championship. So, you know, it's just, you know, when everybody, when you know it's coming to an end uh, and you've had a great career, you, you hope to end it on a high note. And uh, Kevin's been such a, a great ambassador of NASCAR racing. Uh, you just hope he has a great year and, and uh, you know, he'll be at peace when he finally takes that checker flag for the final time at the end of the year. Yeah. Last question. We'll end on this. Um, I mean, you got a great field of past winners like Denny Hamlin, Joey Logano uh, and others, but I'm amazed, David, some of the all time greats have still never won this race. Kyle Busch. He's with the new team this year with RCR. Brad Keselowski, um, of guys that, that haven't won before, uh, who's most likely to break through? Is this, is this is, can, can Kyle Busch get it done with a new team here at RCR? Can he come out with a bang and win his first Daytona 500? Well, I mean, when you speak about Kyle Busch, you know, I think he's kind of got a chip on his shoulder and, you know, and, and he wants to prove to everybody, uh, you know, switching teams from Joe Gibbs racing to Richard Childress racing that, you know, uh, he can still get the job done and just watch, you know, watching his first race expedition race they had in the LA Coliseum, you know, he finished third, but he, he, he spun with about 20 laps to go in the race, went all the way to the tail end of the, of the, of the field, came all the way back up to second and ended up third. And you look at the way the RCR cars have competed uh, in 2022 and their performances and, how many races they won. I think we're going to see Kyle Busch in victory lane a lot, but you are talking about the Super Bowl of NASCAR racing, the Daytona 500. You know, it's going to be, it's open for anybody to win. And uh, it's so, it's such a challenging race. It's so hard to win it. That's what makes it so exciting in our Super Bowl. So, you know, is Kyle Busch capable of winning the Daytona 500? Yes, he is. Is he one of the favorite? Yes, he is. But also Denny Hamill is, Joy Logano is. You know, there's so many, so many that can win the race. And that's why this place will be packed Sunday afternoon for the Daytona 500 to see how it all plays out. And, uh, man, I just know it's going to be a great race. Oh, yeah. I mean, Kyle Larson is yet to win this. Uh, you know, Martin Truex, Chase Elliott, just to name a few. Uh, should be a lot of fun. David, best of luck this weekend. We'll be rooting you on. we got a live show we're going to do Saturday night. Folks don't want to miss out on that, and uh, we'll uh, be hearing from you soon. Thanks for the time, David. Hey, Tyler, thank you for having me on the Jones Report, buddy. 
Joining us now, the Jones Report this week, we are so excited to have with us Matt Tiff. He is the co-owner of the Team Live Fast number 78 NASCAR Cup Series team. Also uh, has spent many years uh, driving in NASCAR uh, as well, but now on the team owner side, and he joins us here from Daytona. Matt, how are we doing? Thanks for joining us, Matt. Yeah, no, doing great. Thanks for um, having me and, and excited this week. You know, it's it's weird we go to the uh, LA Clash and everything, but but truly for me, this is our start of the season. So it's right. it's always great to come here, and it feels like a, just a complete reset for us this year. So many things have happened, so it's, it's great to get here and get it started. Yeah, and uh, I, I got to ask you, you know, coming to Daytona, you've been here many times. You're not in the race car this weekend, but – do you still get that itch coming back here? Do you feel like you should be out on the track right now? You know, it's it's changed so much because years ago, you know, coming here, you're anxious as a driver and you're stressed as a driver, but also you're excited with the adrenaline feel as a driver. Um, I have all those same feelings, but it's shifted. Uh, sure. It's like 1A is driver, 1B is owner. So um, I still feel like, you know, I'm so involved and in, um, actually more so than ever. I'm not in the seat, but looking at data, um, having our partners here, everything like that, I feel like I'm actually more involved um, than I was before. So it's a totally different feeling, but uh, man, the itch is no different. It's still a race car. I'm still a team my role has changed but the uh, love and passion is uh, if it's not the same it's even more so yeah so with that being said like uh is there a possibility down the line we could see you back in a race car again or you'd your racing day's done for now i'm never gonna say never we'll say okay. that okay well that's what we call tease uh tell me about this uh this 78 car you guys got a great deal going on with power slap and rumble uh, how did this all come together? And, and uh, that's a big-time deal for you guys to have this deal for Daytona here. Yeah, it's uh, it's super cool. I mean, uh, BJ McLeod, our driver here and co-owner of the team, he's a, a giant Dana White and UFC fan. And, um, you know, of course, Dana announced the uh, Power Slap League coming on, you know, in, in recent years here. So it's a big deal for us to have them and Rumble um, for such a, a giant uh, media content area for them. And really, coming to Daytona 500, there's no bigger event in motorsports that um, is able to go captivate an audience in the millions of people to go see this right. event whether it's on tv or social i mean there's just so many teens and millions or however many we get this year right so um to have them on the car and to produce such a great product for a brand and be able to have a, a marketing asset for them here for us is so big and you know that's i'm so involved in the marketing side now and the um and really that whole part of it is huge for an emerging brand like power slap you know people say oh dana white ufc well he's smart power slap is an emerging brand is an emerging sport so we have to go put that in a race car and we go provide that wing for him to go put that out to the public. And um, it's a great demographic for them. And it's a way to go launch that and rumble creators for them um, to go put that into the public. And so we, we try to go um, captivate audiences and bring that into the NASCAR spotlight from um, their already huge markets that they have with people. That's awesome. Uh, seems like a natural fit, uh, the two come together. And, and uh, BJ in the race car, we know Daytona, the, the great equalizer of sorts, you know, what are you guys' expectations? How are you feeling about heading into Sunday and your chances to, to compete? Well, I think you saw a tale of two different duels last night. You saw one that was nice and calm, one that was crazy, right? So I think the Daytona 500 is going to be just like that for us. So there's going to be tame parts and there's going to be wild parts. You look at our history down in Daytona. The Daytona 500, we've had good runs and mishaps. And we haven't really gotten caught up in too many cr- crashes, luckily. A-, a few here and there, but as far as damage. But no wild things happen. And then the Daytona fall races, we've been in the top ten. 
So we haven't had things quite go our way in the 500 yet. We're hoping to change that this weekend. Um, but, you know, our strategy has always been kind of hang back, uh, stay with the field, but kind of be able to play the patience game, play the chess game of being around towards the end. Um, these races have gotten so crazy. Um, these next-gen cars, it's really hard to see and see these cars. So they're kind of flying blind a bit. You know, with the old car, you kind of see just things, watch for smoke, watch for cars going, talking to BJ and these other drivers. They're really going off the spotters. They can't quite see. They're pushing, 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 and then Bro. all of a sudden it explodes. So the visibility is tough for them. Um, so it really just adds to I did not know this. That's interesting. Yeah. No, it's crazy. I mean, listen to them. They cannot see at all. Um, it's way worse than the old car. And so they're pushing even harder than they ever had before. The bumpers with these new um, these new bodies on these next-gen cars, they don't line up. I mean, you see some tandems break out, but they're not getting away from each other. So big moves happen. They're not side-drafting and sucking off as huge as they used to. So it's keeping the pack combined a lot more. Um, pit stops, they're wild, as always, with the OEMs, bitting with each other. But when they come back together, we're seeing you know stages matter more than ever. I mean, look at the playoffs. It's decided by two, three points all, all the time every year. These drivers know that points happen and start to matter as soon as we start this race on um, on February twenty or February nineteenth. Is it something like that for this yeah. this Sunday? Um, it matters right at the beginning of this year. And so for us, you know, we're we not we may not be playing for stage points. So we can kind of hang back a little bit, play for the end of this race, and that really helps us a bit as a small team. That's awesome. And, uh, I mean, what is this now, year two, three for you guys as, yeah. uh, as an organization? Uh, what's kind of the goals going into the 2023? Are you guys looking to, to take a big step forward here? Yeah, it's a year three for us. So, you know, year one, we launched it. Year two, kind of launched it again with the next-gen car. And then now year three, switching over to Chevy from Ford. So, um, new year for us again. And um, taking a big step up with the ECR motor program, uh, lined up with those guys. And, you know, for us, we are taking a, a big investment into our team. And it's hard being where we're at, being a small team. Um, we don't have the funding as the bigger guys do, but we are stepping up our program. And so this year, I'm not going to say we're going to be a rocket ship um, by, any, by any means, but um, we are trying to take it like any business and step it up slowly and surely. But at the same time, this is a sport. You know, people expect you to go compete and do things. And we're really trying to go compete this year. And if that means 30th or 31st, it's a lot better than last year. We want to be um, in the mix. And that's the big thing is if we can be in the mix, anything can happen. If you're two, three, four laps down, you can't be in the mix. But if you're that one lap, two lap buffer to being in the lead lap, man, the, these green white checkers here, especially Daytona, really anything can happen. But as we go throughout the season, um, we know we kind of have our classic cars that, that we go compete with, and our goal is to go compete with those guys and, and try to beat them. You know, uh, I don't know how many people outside of the NASCAR world know this, but, you know, the playoff system, basically you win and you're in. Is there any type of mindset of all, like, man, if we can just find a way to, you know, get one at Daytona or Talladega, like, we're there. Is that in the back of your minds at all? Is there anything – you know, are you guys thinking about trying to be a playoff team? We're we're here to win. I mean, BJ doesn't have the full season. Josh Balicki will fill in some races for us. So, um, but what people don't realize is there are the driver playoffs, but the owner playoffs as a team owner is a bigger deal um, because for us that allows us to go into the uh, point standings for the year. And um, to be honest, I haven't looked into it too much if we even get in that or how that works because we haven't been in that spot yet. But the point is, we are here to win. Um, it, when we come to these speedway race and top tens are great we've been ninth and seventh here um by my math i think this should we should be fifth and then go third and then be uh, first if we keep me going the odds with the top 10 so um no but seriously if we get down to the end you know in the fall race here last year we restarted um i think 
outside of first row, outside second row, we had a lot of damage, but we were pushing to go win this race. Um, didn't have the car at that point. We were all beat up, but we were trying to. So if it comes down to it, we're in the um, last 10 laps, we're going for it. So we have to, again, play that strategy to be there at the end. We're not going to take big chances during the first two stages or really even the first half of the last stage. But the way this race plays out, they're going to wreck. There's going to be cautions, whatever it may be for in that last stage. So if we can be in a place where we put ourselves in position, we're going to go for it and see what we can do. That's a, that's great. Uh, excited for you guys and see how this ultimately plays out here in 2023. And, uh, you know, this this race coming to Daytona, 75th NASCAR season and everything, does d- does it ever hit you like, you know, the the history of this place and the sport just just being a part of what's what's gone on here? What's what what does that mean to you? I mean it's it's incredible. You look at the seventy fifth anniversary, um, the twenty fifth anniversary of Dale Senior finally getting the five hundred win here. This place, it's unlike any other. This is I tell people all the time, like, yeah, we go to the racetrack every weekend. There's no place like being at the Daytona 500 and being on pit road for the flyover. And that flyover, that national anthem, gives me goosebumps every single time. It is, it's unbelievable. Um, you walk, yesterday, I was walking out the DL lot here, uh, where we have all of our RVs for the drivers and owners for people who don't, who don't know that. And um, yeah, I'm walking out and Richard Petty waves to me. And, and you know, we have meetings with all the team owners and presidents all the time. And um, still, you know, as much as we all work together and do things together as a group, it still amazes me, and I appreciate it so much that I'm in the spot to go work with absolute legends. I mean, the king, right? Um, so it's pretty special. Um, it does not go uh, beyond me of how important that is and the importance of this sport. And really, when you look at baseball, football, basketball, NASCAR has just about as long of a tenure as those sports do now when we look at media and, um, and you know, look at technology and transportation in the U.S. and, and in human history. This is the pinnacle of that. You go down to Daytona Beach, and um, I went to a jewelry store with my girlfriend on Valentine's Day, and uh, the lady there was talking about she was at the, the beach races here and talking about how a guy went into the water down there and really? talking about, you know, setting the tides and how the race, you know, how the drivers would adjust their position based on the tides for the race. Coming down here and hearing those stories, it just it gives you those surreal feelings of like, wow, we are so incredibly blessed to be in the sport in 2023, and look how far it's come. Yeah, that's awesome. That's uh, that's great, uh, Matt. Before we go, uh, where can people follow along the race team and see what you guys are doing uh, here all weekend long? What's the easiest way to? see what you guys are doing and uh, catch the race and everything absolutely so um at team live fast for most social um at uh, live fast motorsports i think on tiktok and um, as far as our, our um, partners this weekend go check out power slap and rumble creators and yeah we'll be um along all this year i check out the number 78 camaro and of course our driver bj mcleod at bj mcleod 78 and um yeah just um if you're looking for a dark horse pick this weekend check out the 78 car like i said we may not be too exciting up in the mix during the, the uh, beginning of this race but somehow we squeak through and make it at the end of these daytona races that's awesome uh certainly gonna be written on you guys and uh, best of luck this weekend matt all right thanks so much Time for Coach Bo's Football Fix, presented by O'Connor Advisory Group. You can check out O'Connor Advisory Group online, oagks.com, o'connoradvisorygroup.com. And he is the host of the Coach Bo Knows Podcast, out twice a week, wherever you listen to podcasts, and he joins us right now. Bo, how are we doing, my friend? I'm doing okay. How are you today? I'm always good. It is a nice here in a sunny Daytona Beach, Florida. Um, yeah. 
Bo, uh, let's look back at the Super Bowl. Uh, you doubted the Kansas City Chiefs all year long, and they ultimately host the Lombardi Trophy. Let, let me let me put it to you this way: um, What is different about them now compared to what you had saw? Did anything change compared to the team that you had saw all year to the team that won it all? Or were well, you just wrong about some things? How would you evaluate no, I I, where this team is compared well, to the team that you saw all year? I, I think two things. One, it was Mahomes being Mahomes at the end of the game. That's how they won this game. I mean, that's the second half of the game. And on my on my podcast, I even mentioned, I said, hey, there's a chance the Chiefs can pull this off. What's going to have to happen is Patrick Mahomes be Patrick Mahomes in the second half. I, I think that if you look, and I will say this about the game. I don't think the Eagles played defensively well at all in the game, not even in the first half. I, I mean, that was a big part of it. Um, but I don't want to take away from the Chiefs. The fact that the Chiefs came back 10 down at the half and controlled the second half with their offense is important to give them their flowers. I think my biggest thing on the Chiefs and why I have was not sold on them throughout the year as the absolute best team was that I thought the Eagles were the best team. They yeah. were more consistent. It was just a consistency thing. It wasn't me saying, I think they're bad. Never said that. I always said, I like the Eagles better because of consistency. Now, one thing I also said this season, and I think is really rang true, is the long-term health of the Chiefs was improved. By the Tyreek Hill trick. I know a lot of folks, you know, they everybody started. I mean, now we're seeing people say that, well, they were in a rebuilding this year. Look, they were better without him. There's a reason. It made Mahomes a better quarterback. Plain and simple. He's a better quarterback. He's having to play the position of quarterback, which he has played extremely well this year. He was the MVP. And, 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 you know, look, rightfully so. I mean, it was a two-man race, him and Hurts, when it's all said and done. It was a great game. In the end, Patrick Mahomes just played better in the second half than the Eagles, and the Eagles' defense couldn't find an answer for the motion. With uh, Mahomes having the, the ankle injury, re-injuring his ankle, and then coming back and playing the way that he did, um, all-time performance, was that – I know some people are saying too much is being made of him coming off of that. Do you think that was a a, a big deal or, or not so much a big deal for him to overcome that injury like that? I think it's a big deal that he overcame that injury. You could tell he was hurting. I mean, it, that was not an easy injury. He clearly got shot up at halftime, and you put the stuff in there and you get it going. Um, you know, it – I think if anything else, it speaks to his toughness, which I don't think has ever been in doubt, but I think it speaks to his toughness and it speaks to what he's capable of doing. And I don't know if anyone was out here questioning whether Patrick Mahomes was a, a great player or, or any questioning Mahomes would be futile to me. Um, the nice thing is that is it a historic performance? Absolutely. I mean, what – but in the end, and I don't like – you know me, I, I'm I'm the opposite of you on that. You you, you got to put things historic quickly. I can't do that. I 
I'll sit here and ask the question this way. Is it a historical performance? Yes. He played extremely well and was dominant in the second half. Dominant, dominant, dominant. But go back and think about it. Do you really think of anyone's individual performance in, a, in the Super Bowl and go, well, that made their career? It didn't make his career. No. The overall of who he is is what's making his career. Right. It's I'm, another I'm example. It's another age. line on the resume for him. that he, And he played incredible. I'm Absolutely. just saying, was it a big deal of him coming back from that injury? Did Was it that serious of an issue as people made it out to be? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah the, the, was. the ankle is bad. Yeah. You can tell when he got hit in the first calf and that and that thing, when the way he was hopping. So what you do, you got to – and here's the worst part of that. So you take the guy in the, into the locker room, you unwrap his fucking ankle, you got to shoot him up. And they probably shot him up. And luckily, they had a, a long halftime for the Super Bowl to get him back out there to do it. The problem isn't long-term. The problem isn't that he gets a shot in his ankle. He just couldn't feel You could run over his ankle with a train in the second half, and he wouldn't have felt it. The issue is that pain makes us stop when we know we're doing worse to a, a, our bones, our joints, our ligaments, whatever it is. Now he can't feel it. And what the problem with doing that constantly, and it's not in this case, but the reason you don't see that more often is that you don't have the know-how to know that I need to stop from further injuring myself. Now, luckily, it appears that he has not further injured himself. It's a high ankle sprain. He'll be in a month and a half. He's going to pull fine. Yeah. It takes time now. Yeah, the lucky thing is, is that he did not further injure himself that would affect him in the 2023 season and, and going and, and going forward. That's not going to be an issue. So, you know, yeah. you know, I, we love you know looking at evaluating teams and you know their their talent they have and coming up and all that stuff. And I, I got to give credit, Bo, to, to Brett Beach, the Chiefs GM, for what I call cracking the code, we have not seen teams be able to win a Super Bowl and have a highly paid quarterback that just hasn't happened at all. And here they were. They they took the gamble. They moved on from Tyreek Hill. They spent money at other positions. And it paid off for them. They still had enough talent to win – you know, and, and make this thing work. To me, I was so impressed with uh, with that job of of just getting to this point. What Brett Beach has done to and all those rookies they had step up to. I mean, if you were hoping that after Mahomes got paid, this team would take a step back, I mean, they're they're not going anywhere. Beach did an incredible job with with this yeah. roster for this team getting to where they went. I agree that Brett Beach done a great great job. Um, I look at this. And kind of how you're saying that, I agree with a lot of that, is I'm saying that where it got flipped many years ago was when the Seahawks won with Russell Wilson when he was in his rookie quarter, his rookie contract. Right, second year, so yeah. They, then the idea became, okay, now you got to try to win your rookie contract because he did it, Mahomes did it. Um, you know, Brady was the exceptions to the rule 
Last year, even then, Brady was never the highest paid. He always took yeah, but Brady always took pay cuts. That kind of thing. He was never the highest paid player in his position, or or even one of them. Um, You know, last year Joe Burrow got to the Super Bowl. Uh, This year, you had both Jalen Hurts and Mahomes in the Super Bowl, but Mahomes has gotten the big contract. But we talked about this in the offseason a little bit, if you recall. We talked about how, if you look, there's going to be people who will want to play with Mahomes. And look at Juju Smith-Schuster, Kadarius Toney. You know, these guys who came and played in that offense who could probably make more money somewhere else. But they decided to go here because we're in the they they're in the window, and we're going to see that with some of these great quarterbacks. We got five or six of these great great quarterbacks. We're going to see a little more of that, but it is difficult to win this thing now with the quarterback who is in the middle of that large contract. I think it speaks to Mahomes and how good he is. It also speaks that. Veach and the offensive staff, really the whole team, are on the same page with how to bring in players. The smartest thing that the Chiefs did in this offseason, and you and I talked a lot about this in the offseason, was not giving money to Tyreek Hill. Yeah. I mean, if it was the thing of saying, okay, look, if you you sign him, someone has to go. Well, and it was decided that Kelsey was more important. And we could replace Tyree Hill kind of in the interim. And so they've think, done that. That's how they'll continue to do it. So here's here's just a little perspective here. It's like the the draft picks they got and then the you know money that went to other positions. If Tyree Hill is on that team, there's no Trent McDuffie, there's no Juju, there's no Valdez Scanling. Yeah. Probably not Frank Clark. They probably would have moved on Frank Clark, too. Yep. I mean, they would have been good still, but they're probably not getting past the Bengals, maybe not even the Bills. No, I mean, I agree with you on that, is that I don't think they would have gotten past those teams, and I'm not sure they would have been nearly as good. Again, it's more about you don't have to have the best pieces. If you have good, really, really great ones, and they've got Mahomes, they get the best quarterback, and then you have Travis Kelsey, who's a, who's a difference maker, and then from there, you can fill in athletically. In the with receivers and running backs, you can go in and fill in with a number of talented people and just have rotations. You know, Valdez Scantling is another one of those guys that again he could be playing somewhere else, probably making more money, but came to Kansas City because of Mahomes. Right. I think you're going to see more of that. I mean, we talked about how, you know, when Odell Beckham was available, why, you know, what was the, the appeal that he can go to the Chiefs? Well, because you play with Mahomes, you have a chance to win. Right. No. Yeah. So just kind of knowing your role, being in that little spot and saying, like, I, this is what I do. And there is, the, the, the thing I'll also say about Brent Veach, though, is that when you are very, very good the way they have been the last two or three seasons, especially, you can take that first round pick at the end of the draft. And you can go get a specific piece. Instead of drafting best available player, you can say, I want this piece yes. for their offense. They've done that two or three, two years in a row, really three years in a row. And that's been helpful. I mean, it's the whole situation in Kansas City since Andy Reid came and 
management became let's win football games and not just fill up Arrowhead. That has been what's happened here. And then you get Patrick Mahomes. I mean, that's incredible. It's, that's the lottery there. Um, let me ask you about the uh, the flag, uh, the holding call. What did you uh, think of the call that was made there on that final drive? I'm going to make some people mad. They shouldn't have thrown that flag. But here's why. Was it a flag? Yeah. He definitely helped. No, no problem. One, did it change the outcome of the play? No, that ball was not being completed to him. Two, these refs did a really, really good job the entire game of letting both sides play. The only flags we had were pretty egregious. I mean, it was you if you if you if you held somebody or if there was a pass interference, it was pretty egregious. That one to me is something that that gets not called. So often, including in this game, by the flow of this game, that I think, and the young man said it after the game. He said, well, I held him. I just think that they were going to call it. He didn't think they were going to call it because they hadn't been calling that kind of thing all game. It was right. ticky tack. It's ticky tack. Now, look, the difference still is the Chiefs are going to get that field goal either way. The only difference is now the Eagles have a minute 20 and a timeout. Do they still they still have to score? They still gotta get a field goal. So it's not like they just gave it away, but it did shorten the game. I mean, right. it, the way I said it to somebody this week was it didn't affect the outcome, it didn't change it didn't affect who won the game, but it changed the outcome of the game. Right. It was both. And that happened in the, the the AFC Championship game as well. I think that some of that frustration also bleeds over. And so, I, you know, I, I get it. I don't think the refs cost the Eagles the game, but I do think they changed the outcome. In the, in the end, the Eagles never had an opportunity to win. With, uh, with that call made, um, do, do you think – in the moment, the the officials, you know, wanted to stake their claim there. Or do you think that that official was doing what he felt was the right decision? I think the official was doing what he thought was the right decision. No officials going out there and saying, "Oh, it's about us. Let's make this call." No, I mean the guy said, "Hey, let's. I'm going to flag that." You know, I get it, but it again, and that's the thing is that we're dealing with people. And so there's going to be inconsistency. You know, we may you may like it or you may not like it, but there's going to be some inconsistency. I thought for the most part, the reps were really good in this Super Bowl. I thought that was the one thing that was an outlier to me. And the only thing about that is because, again, they had let the players play. Yeah. And that's something that's rare. I'm glad they let the players play because they let the players decide who wins the game in the right. end. And that's a good thing. I thought the most egregious mistake made by the officials was not made by the officiating crew. It was the replay crew. And that was, in the first half, the Dallas Goder uh, reception. He still ain't yeah. caught that ball. Right. I mean, that, I don't know who the fuck thought that was a catch. Right. Uh, yeah. So I think in the offseason, we're going to see a lot about officiating. Um, and it's going to have to be about consistency. That's really all it is. 
And and right. you know, people who you know are upset at the, at the refs in that game, they're they're upset because of the outcome of the game and saying, well, this took this cheated the Eagles. It didn't cheat the Eagles. It simply took away an opportunity when they really hadn't been consistent with those type of calls. I understand right. the frustration, but at the same time, you didn't lose because of that. Um, when you look at that Eagles team, um, what was the biggest reason you think they did loss? Was it the fumble oh. that Jalen Hurts made? Was it the defensive front seven not doing its part, not getting any sacks? What was the, the biggest issue you think for Philly? Or, or was it Sirianni's decision-making? We went into – when we talked on my podcast earlier in the week about this already, and I, I, I went into depth about it. The Eagles' defensive coaching staff did a horrible job. Horrible. Um, and, and it's a good thing that there are a bunch of them are leaving because I'd be pretty pissed at them right now. They wasted money on Vic Fangio for that two-week stretch. He saw, you look at this and you go, wait a minute. <clears throat> the Chiefs, pardon me. The Chiefs run a lot of motion. They run motion for a couple of different reasons. Everybody in the NFL has pre has motion to see if your defense is in man or, or zone. Then from there, the Chiefs run a lot of motion to try to get players open for certain routes or to open up certain holes in the run game. Yeah. So if you're a defensive coordinator and you've got a plan, they got the Kansas City Chiefs. The number one thing I've got to figure out is. What are the patterns of this motion? Yeah. If they're going to take a player from the left side and take him all the way over to the right, then what is the reason? What are they wanting to accomplish here? And make sure that I don't give that to them. Yeah. When you're sitting there and you're going through this, you have to extrapolate those things. Well, then the next thing you have to consider is, well, okay, if they're doing this to get this, then what are they going to do when we adjust? Right. So I'll give you them the idea. The Chiefs had a couple of plays where they moved players from the right side of the formation to the left side of the formation. And what they figured out was the Eagles wanted to stay in man coverage because they're worried about Kelsey. And so they would take the DB all the way over with him. Well, then what you do is well, you, your player knows where he's going. Their player doesn't. So snap the ball while he's in motion throw the ball to the back or the receiver who's in the backfield. And now he's going, you know, run a route, got the ball, and he's already ahead of the defender because he's got the ball. <laughs> I mean, he knows that it fitted him to cross the formation. What you should have done is start passing that off, saying, okay, I, I, I'm here. He's going. You've got him. We're all going to move down. The Eagles started doing that in the third quarter, and the Chiefs were ready for it. What the Chiefs then did was they did return motion. Each of the two touchdowns, the one that went to the right that was wide open, but naked wide open, was return motion. Because in that formation, when they ro rolled him in, the, all the, the linebackers moved, the corner moved over, and went with the receiver. But by the time he came over with him, receiver already turned around, snapped the ball, and he's wide open because the player guard covering him has to come back. Yeah. And he's not looking for that. He's looking for him to go across the formation. Right. So, big and wide open touchdown. 
The other one, I think it was the second to last score, or maybe the last the last touchdown, which was a brilliant play, a great design, and Mahomes played it perfectly. Was they ran the route of the back came out and went inside. The one of the receivers was in motion. He goes wide, and now you got one guy, and it's the safety. And the safety has to commit to one of them. He committed to the inside guy, should have gone to the outside guy, but he went to the inside guy. Your back is, although the receiver who's in motion is now wide open, easy ball. Mahomes is rolling that way, and he's looking at him, staring him down. And when the safety went inside, Mahomes went, thanks, and just chucked it over to him. Had he stepped outside, Mahomes still would have fitted it in to the inside receiver. Yeah. So either way, that was a touchdown. Either way, that was just Mahomes being great, and the design was great. Again, I blame a lot of it on the Eagles' side to their defense just not being ready for motion. I I nerded out and went back and watched a lot of the second half just to watch how the the Chiefs creatively they didn't run the Mickey Mouse bullshit. It was very well done. It wasn't. Let's just go up there and do some craziness. It was no. Let's get them in these situations, figure out which way they're going to go, and then we're going to have a, a palette of plays that we can go to based on how they return to us. It was very well done. The offensive staff of the Chiefs outdid the offensive staff of, of the defensive staff of the of the Eagles. And it's, I mean, it was if you're a football nerd. That was exactly what you try to do. When you're a coordinator and you're trying to come up with a game plan, you've got to think two or three steps ahead. The Chiefs were ready for that. The Eagles were not. And you can say, well, the front seven didn't play well, and they didn't play great at all. But it's not just that. I mean, the big plays, the, the scoring plays, and a lot of the yardage plays came from just simply the motion and the, the Eagles not being in the right spots. Yeah. It was horrible. The run game was that way. Anytime you see uh, the motion and then Pacheco goes to the left, it right. was because they motioned and the Eagles linebackers moved too far to where now your outside linebacker on the defensive right is in the middle of the field. That's right. one less guy we got to block. Yeah. And I know that's a lot of nerd stuff really quickly there, but that's, in the end, offensive staff of the, of the Chiefs out-coached the defensive staff of the Eagles, far and away. If you ranked the four subsets of who, who, what team played best, offense and defense, I thought the Eagles' offense played spectacular the whole game. They only had the one punt. I thought they actually played better than the Chiefs' offense. Chiefs' offense was an explosion in the second half. A lot of that, they didn't get the ball much in the first half. Then the Chiefs' defense, the Eagles' defense would be three or four. I mean, if you looked at it, it was just worst by far. Yeah. They looked ill-prepared. Right. I, I got to give a lot of credit to the Chiefs' offensive staff. They just simply outbrained that. I mean, and to think about the Eagles offensively, Jalen Hurts went out there and just tried to be a man and take over. That right. was their opportunity to stay in the game was that he just was going to take over the game by himself. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. Speaking of uh, Jalen Hurts, um, you know, I, I feel for the guy that 
he hasn't still got the chance to win a championship yet fully on his own. You know, the, the one they got at Alabama, obviously Tua came in in the second half and yeah. the year prior they lost to Clemson. I mean, he's been the Cinderella now so many times. Uh, you know, he, he's come so close, but nonetheless, like, you know, even though he, he didn't ultimately get the title, I, I still felt happy in a sense for Jalen Hurts, Bo, that, you know, he had the one fumble, but I mean, that was, that was one play. I still felt like he did pretty much everything that was asked of him. He threw the ball football. He threw the ball. Well, um, he made all the big time plays. I mean, there should be no questions left when it comes to Jalen hurts. He is, he is that dude. Yeah. Jalen hurts was phenomenal in this game. And I heard the argument from my last week saying that Dylan hurts should have been MVP saying that, not of the game, but of the season, saying, hey, look how bad they were in the two games he didn't play. Yeah. Um, you can certainly argue that. Um, but but he was fantastic. He, he He's a fantastic player, and they use his skills in that offense so well. You know, it's like Mahomes in a way. Look, Mahomes is a better player than Jalen Hurts, but what they really do and what the Chiefs do really well is that they – they understand who they've got, what they've got, skill set they've got. The Eagles have done the same thing with Jalen Hurts. They understand his skill set and say, oh, we got this. How do we best use that? You know, I know that one of the teams you cover is the Ravens, mm-hmm. and they've got one of those guys in Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson is one of those dudes. But the Ravens have not found a good way to use his skills all the way. Thus, they haven't had postseason success with him. There's a handful of quarterbacks, and we might be in the golden era of quarterbacks right now. There's six, five or six quarterbacks off the top of my head I can think of that are legitimately good enough to win a Super Bowl. It's a matter of can they get can you use their skills correctly and build those teams around? The Chiefs have done an exceptional job with Patrick Mahomes. And, and now the Eagles with Jalen Hurts. They've built a really great team around him, and they use his skills. I mean, he's he's a different skill set. He's still fantastic. I hope he gets a big contract. He certainly deserves it, in my view. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I, I was I was certainly happy for him, and I know his day's going to come. He'll he'll get that that title at some point. Uh, Bo. Uh, last thing uh, on the the NFL front and then uh then we'll move on here talking a little bit of college football. Um Colts and Cardinals each have new head coaches. The uh top assistants from uh the Eagles are making their way to those jobs. What do you think about the hirings made by uh by by Indianapolis and Arizona here? Um they're both solid hires. Uh the the two guys are both you know really good coaches. I think the issue for me on those is, boy, Arizona better be right because that's a shit show to go into. Uh, with everything going on with Kyler Murray, you know, not only is Kyler Murray the guy, but he's also hurt for the most of the first year you're going to be there. Their roster is depleted. That's uh, I mean, with the Colts. It's again, it's not a great show. You got to figure out there the quarterback is the issue. What do you need to do at quarterback? And then from there, you might be able to move that roster around and figure things out. Um, 
both coaches are going into bad situations of roster management and their own tools they have to worry about, their own unique situations. So I don't think any of these bad these coaching hires were bad hires this this offseason so far, but uh I don't think there's a lot of great situations anybody's going into either. Uh, one more NFL note. I, I forgot to mention it real quick. Uh, Derek Carr released. Uh, oh, yeah. You and I are not fans of Derek Carr by any means. Uh, you know, we, we live by the philosophy. Every time he casts a paycheck, he's stealing money. Um, I'll say this about th- that whole ordeal, Bo. I mean, these NFL teams, they're not dumb. They, they knew that there was no incentive for them to trade for Derek and take on that contract that if that date wasn't going to be met, he was going to be released. I think he very well may have enjoyed his visit to new Orleans and he might end up signing with the saints, but saints or any team for that matter, why would you trade for him when he was about to get released anyway? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, as we all know, I'm a saints fan. So, uh, and I'm totally against the saints signing Derek Carr. Um, But before we get even get to that, Yes, there's no reason to trade for Derek Carr. None, because you knew he was getting released. The thing that if I were Derek Carr, the person I'd be pissed at if I was Derek Carr is Derek Carr and his agent. Because they put, we knew last year going into the season that that was going to be that the season before should have been his last year there. They could have cut him and not had any salary cap issue. Then they they restructured this stupid contract where he gets a $40 million bonus if he's on the roster on February the 15th or February 14th. Um, there was no chance he was getting that bonus. I mean, he basically got underpaid for the one year. The rest of his contract's now voided. He's not getting that money. The only way he was going to get that money was if the Raiders went to the playoffs and deep in the playoffs. Or he played like a like an MVP caliber player, which he just simply is not. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you there. Um on the college football note, uh Pac 12 TV negotiations uh going on, not going very well. Came out on Wednesday that Turner and CBS are not interested in that Amazon and ESPN, neither one want the full package um, and that their offers aren't great financially. We already know that Fox is out of the equation. You also had reports the last couple of days that some schools are very upset with the direction of this league right now. Interest in SMU and San Diego State, but does that really move the needle? Is uh, is the end near for the Pac-12? Is there anything George Kliakoff can do to salvage this? I don't know. I don't think I don't think so. I, I look at this now and I go, well, I don't know how you save this. You don't have you don't have a TV partner. Um, you don't have a this is gonna end up being a conference USA kind of thing. I mean, this is what the Pac 12 is gonna turn into. Um, you know, or the American conference. That's what they're that, that's who they are now. They're gonna be a mid, you know, with the, with the in basketball we used to call the mid majors. That's right. what they're gonna turn into. And it's simply because they've lost the two biggest things they had, UCLA and USC. Um, you don't have, you know, big TV markets in those areas where you do have schools. And you were the last the last horse. I mean, if you're the last horse to get the hay, the hay's already gone. 
and these, these, these companies are going to spend less and less money on, on TV rights right now. The, the SEC and the Big 12 and the Big 10 blew it up. They got the majority of the money, and now there's no incentive to give uh, anybody big money, especially while I think the other big thing that these, these conferences have to worry about is that they're now negotiating not just against themselves and each other, but now the NBA as well because the NBA deal's coming up. The NBA, gonna, NASCAR, WWE. NASCAR, yeah. yeah, I mean, and that's another one that's in there. You know, Major League Baseball is about to got to go buy back all the RSN networks. So it, it's going to be it's in the for the sports nerd, and I and I know both of us are that in that group too. This is an amazing time to watch some things happen because a lot of things are going to change in the next eighteen to twenty four months. And I don't know if it means the Pac twelve goes away, but I know that the Pac twelve is going to have a problem with being considered a big conference. They're not going to be in that SEC, Big 10, or Big 12. We said a year ago, we said there's going to be a winner, there's going to be a loser in the Big 12 and the Pac-12, and the Big 12 won. Um, Speaking of the Big 12, I have a theory. I I mentioned this with Thomas earlier. I'll bring it up to you, Bo. Here's my idea on this, this whole situation. If the Big 12, I think you you have like two pods here. You have the Oregon-Washington thing, and then you have the four corner schools, Utah, Arizona, Arizona State, and Colorado. If you can convince one of the two, let's call them pods here, to make your move, you can't leave the other pod behind, right? I mean, if, if let's say the four corners go, why on earth would Oregon and Washington stay? You got to go with, or if Oregon yeah. and Washington go to the Big Twelve, the other four we can't get left behind either. I mean, initially, I think the goal was for the Big Twelve to try to get maybe two, at least two, hopefully four. I don't think it's out of the question the Big Twelve could come away with six of the Pac twelve members now. If they come away with six, how many does it take their total to? Eighteen, and it seems unlikely the Big Ten wants to. Expand any further west. Yeah. So I'd go. Yeah. If I were the Big 12, I would do that. I, I think that you're spot on. If I was the Big 12, I'd go pillage through the rest of the Pac 12. I'd take the Oregon and I'd take Oregon and Washington, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, Colorado. If I can get those, it's a lot of TV households. It makes you the bigger conference. Then you got 18 teams. So now you, and you're going to have someone's always going to be good. So now you're going to be competitive in football because you're going to have somebody who's always great. And then you are going to be appealing because you're just going to have more product. And it's going to be, I mean, it's a better deal for the, for the Big 12 to do that than it, than it is for the Big 10 to keep expanding the way they are when they've got schools in New Jersey and California. That right. makes less sense to me. You know, the only one that's the outlier in the Big 12 is really West Virginia. You know, so I, I looked at that and I go, well, yeah. And UCF, but, yeah. Yeah, in UCF, yes. UCF, I, I, I take that back, UCF. Um, but again, it gives you a nationwide footprint. And you've got a chance with a couple of big names in there to be the biggest, to be one of the bigger conferences too. So 
and you've got different personalities in all of them. I'd love to see the Big 12 do that. It might as well. It can't hurt them to do that. Right. Right. And you have the prorated uh, clause with uh, ESPN yep. and maybe the possibility to create another TV package. Uh, it feels that way. In Oklahoma and Texas, they agreed to their exit agreement last mm-hmm. week. Bo, the initial exit fee, if they left on time, both schools were going to have to pay $80 million. But yeah. now they're leaving in a, a year early, and both schools only have to pay $50 million. Bo, I, I know that we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, yeah. but uh, something tells me that – ESPN probably said, hey, let them off a little easy and we'll help you along the way. Something tells me there was some backdoor dealing of why you would let them off as easy as they had. Not to mention the other schools have made it clear they're ready for Oklahoma and Texas to move on too. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's definitely some back some back backroom issues here. And they said, hey, let's just get this thing done. Not just for the good of really, it's for the good of each conference. I mean, it's, it's just as good for the Big 12 to be settled and done with this than it is to try to hold on to two teams for one more year. I mean, go ahead and now move forward, especially as there are going to be discussions of expanding the college football playoff, you know, negotiating those kind of things. And it's to me, it's a, it's a no-brainer to go ahead and just get it done. Like I said, the Big 12 won. When it comes to the Big 12 versus the Pac-12, so they're they know who they are. They are the third conference. You know, the SEC and the Big Ten. You can say who you want is one or one A. Um, you know, by money, it's the Big Ten. By you know, prestige is probably the SEC. But then it's just one level below is now the Big 12. Yeah, it's better for you to just get shit done and be done with that. You know, it's the old thing of if you got an employee who's not doesn't want to be here go ahead and get rid of them you know they want to go go you know it's better for all parties and that's what this was this was it's better for all parties just get this thing done especially with everybody moving around their tv contracts in the next couple of years well and and if you land some of those pac-12 schools and you know with the way that their contract ends and a year earlier than the big 12 tv's contract you don't want your new pac-12 schools playing ou in texas potentially So uh, something to think about there. Last question, and uh, we'll end on this. With Oklahoma and Texas leaving a year early, um, we heard Barry Switzer say this week he's concerned about Oklahoma and not being ready for the SEC. We know what Texas has been through the last few years and everything. Are OU and Texas in for a rude awakening uh, when they jump to the SEC now that we know the date officially? I don't know. I, I don't know for two reasons. One, we don't know what they're going to do about this conference and some kind of a realignment in the conference. Sounds um, like nine conference games with three locked opponents. Yes, and I, I don't know if I like that idea. But um, it's football-wise. I just, but then also hiring your divisions, that kind of thing. Um, I don't like the idea of locked opponents. I really hate that the SEC does that. Um, I know that's what they've done so they can keep certain rivalries over divisions, but I don't like that at all. Instead, I would, you know, say, hey, you got 16 teams, just two two divisions, eight and eight, do it in East versus a West. In this case, you're going to move 
Auburn and Alabama from the west to the east, and then Oklahoma, Texas comes in. Um, I think the big thing is you've got to avoid putting both Oklahoma, Texas into the same division with Alabama and LSU. Sounds like they're talking about no divisions. Yeah. I've seen two different things. I've seen three different things, actually. I've seen a four division. I've seen four divisions. I've seen two. I've heard no divisions. I don't know how this is going to work yet. And I think that's where right now, until we know that, I don't know. I look at Texas and Oklahoma and I go, look, as far as, you know, the level of play, this is Texas, this is Oklahoma. They they are a good fit in the SEC for a reason. You know, they're just as diehard as the SEC schools are. They're just as committed to it as the SEC schools are. You know, the SEC, you and I have joked a lot of times about, you know, it just means more. You know, like it doesn't mean more in Oklahoma. Like it doesn't mean more in Texas. It does. It's just so they haven't had the production the last couple of years. Well, uh, I look this, tradition yeah. of those programs, I know Texas has been down, but we yeah. know with both of them, they're going to spend all the money it takes until they get where they need to be. Exactly. Like, it's not like Nebraska who has recruiting it. You know, everyone wants to compare Nebraska. Like, oh, OU yeah. Texas fall off like Nebraska and all this. Well, there's only so much you can recruit in Lincoln, Nebraska. What they did in the yeah. 90s and all that – was an anomaly. You can't do that now. Oklahoma and Texas, even if they don't, even if they don't have the right coach, and both teams might not have the right coach right now, they're going to keep on pounding the door until they figure it out. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, the commitment is there at right. Texas and Oklahoma. It's it's unlike what happened in Nebraska when they moved to the Big Ten or Missouri when Missouri came to the SEC. You know, they had some initial success, but then they just don't have the commitment as a university and as a program, to be a top-tier team. Right. You're not going to have those problems at, at Oklahoma and Texas. They're going to keep coming. And they're going to keep putting the money. They're going to keep putting the anything they have to do to run with Alabama, with, you know, Georgia, that kind of thing. It's going to be a good, a good fit. Well, real quick before we go, uh, what's on the uh, podcast this week? Hey, we just did uh, – Coming out, we got the review of the Super Bowl. Uh, Uncle Rico and I did that. Uh, if you haven't heard the episode from the weekend, uh, P Money came in and talked to this whole NBA trade deadline. If you're an NBA nerd at all, you'll love Saturday's podcast. Uh, Uncle Rico and I went deep on the Super Bowl, and then we're going to be coming out now talking a lot of college basketball the next couple of weeks as we are, you know, football season's over. So we're going to do a lot of college basketball, getting right up to the tournament. And a lot of fun. Awesome. Bo, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah. Thank you, Tyler. Take care, buddy. Final segment before we call it a week. It is our Tom Fullery story of the week. Thomas Bridges back here with us now. Tom, uh, we're here in Florida. It's usually an easy route to go Florida, man. But what are we going to do this time? Jones, we're going to the internet, the wild world uh, of WWW, baby. Which is basically uh, Florida. Yeah, exactly. And I wouldn't be – I this is – you know what I love to do every time I do Tom Fullery? I love picking an article that I've never read before so we get a live reaction. Um, that being said, we are going to ARS Technica. Never been there before. Um, I'm sure you probably haven't either, but I've seen this on multiple sites. Jones comes out 
on Valentine's Day of all days, Single Awareness Day, um, seven states pushed to require ID for watching porn online. Opponents say laws preventing underage porn access are vague and they pose privacy laws. After decades of America fretting over minors potentially being overexposed to pornography online, several states are suddenly moving fast in 2023 to attempt to keep kids off porn sites by passing laws requiring age verification. Last month, Louisiana became the first state to require an ID from residents to access pornography online. Since then, seven states have rushed to follow in Louisiana's footsteps. According to a tracker from Free Speech Coalition, none other than the state you're in, Jones, Florida, and another state you went to college in, Kansas, South Dakota, and West Virginia introduced similar laws and laws in Arkansas, Mississippi, and Virginia are seemingly closest to passing. If passed, some of these laws could be enforced promptly, while some bills in states like Florida and Mississippi specify they wouldn't take effect until July. But not every state agrees that rushing to require verification is the best solution. Today, South Dakota committee voted to defer voting on its age verification bill until the last day of the legislative session. The bill's sponsor, Republican Jessica Castleberry, seemingly failed to persuade the committee of the urgency of passing the law, saying the hearing that this is not your daddy's playboy. (laughs) (laughs) Extreme, degrading, and violent pornography is one click away from our children. She told ARS that the bill was not passed because some state lawmakers were too easily swayed by powerful lobbyists. I mean, we got Pornhub in the South Dakota legislator saying, no, 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 we need your kids. It's a travesty that unfettered access to pornography by minors online will continue in South Dakota because of the lobbyists protecting the interests of their clients versus legislators who should be protecting our children, Castleberry told ARS. The, uh, the time to pass this bill was in the mid-1990s. Now, she doesn't have anything better to do, obviously. Lobbyists opposing the bill at the hearing represented telecommunications and newspaper associations. Although the South Dakota bill, like the Louisiana wall, exempted news organizations, one lobbyist, Justin Smith, an attorney for the South Dakota Newspaper Association, argued that the law was too vague in how it defined harmful content and how it defined which commercial entities could be subjected to liabilities. We just have to be careful before we put things like this in the law with all these open-ended questions that put our South Dakota businesses at risk. Are they talking about strip clubs? Are they talking about cam girls? What are they talking about here? Say businesses at risk over IDing over porn? Do they? I mean, is strip clubs coming to play, I guess? I, I don't know. Um we would ask you to defeat the bill in its current form. These laws work by requiring age verification of all users, imposing damages on commercial entities found to be neglecting required age verification and distributing content to minors online that has been deemed to be inappropriate. The laws target online destinations where more than a third of the content is considered harmful to minors. Opponents in South Dakota anticipated the states pass these laws as Louisiana has, will struggle to regulate the entire internet. An Arkansas violating content act includes actual simulated or animated displays of body parts like nipples or genitals touching or fondling such body parts, as well as sexual acts like intercourse, masturbation, sodomy, bestiality, yada yada, whatever you can think of. Literally whatever you can think of. 
Um, ARS verified how major porn sites like Pornhub quickly complied. Talking about Louisiana's law. Seems like it seems likely that if news laws are passed in additional states, popular sites will be prepared to implement additional controls to block regional access to minors. ARS could not immediately reach other lawmakers sponsoring age verification bills in these states for comment. Jones, this takes it to a whole new level. So there's, um, there's one thing in particular that stands out here. Like, I think, Tom, there's, there's good intentions of, you know, trying to keep, you know, porn out of minors, you know, ways and stuff like that. I understand. But at the same time, too, Tom, you talk about Big Brother and, you know, government overreach and all this. Isn't this also kind of a way for government to know who's looking at porn? I mean, yeah, and who's looking at what? Right. I mean, if you have to, if you have to put your, if you have to scan your ID every time you look up some titties, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe you won't. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I'd say you can watch anything, whatever you want to watch. But Jones, in my day, and I never did this. I never did this. Um, I'll go on record. I'll go on a lie detector test. Uh, back in my day, it was about kids stealing their parents' credit card to pay for porn on the hotel TV, or <laughs> maybe starting your maybe starting your dad account. You know, your dad an account on some porn website, um, and running his credit card to create a username to get the the longer videos. I don't, you know, I don't know. Now, instead of running a credit card, you tell me you have to go get mom's ID to to watch what you need to watch. Instead of sneaking cigarettes or the credit card out of the purse, you're sneaking her ID. You know, I mean, well, and then Jones, you mentioned the privacy that gives them your address, their your picture, uh, your birthday. Right. Uh, I mean, they give your driver's license number. I mean, all the way more ads can target. Just you know, you imagine scanning it one day to, to I don't know. Uh, I'm not even going to, I'm not, nope, I'm not even going on record. I'm not going to say anybody's name. I'm not saying any porn star's name. I'm not, not even the ones most, let's say the most well-known. If you want to go see Pamela Anderson's titties, you're telling me I got to scan my ID. You know, at that point, who's to say that those sites won't sell your information. And then you just get a, a, a little nice mailer that says, uh, you know, local cougars in your area are looking to hook up. Now, here's another question I have, too. You have all these international sites, right? How are they going to have to abide by this? I feel like there's always going to be some workaround of some sorts. Like, how can you enforce that? I mean, yeah, it's nothing better than offshore porn. Offshore porn. We're going to go from <laughs> offshore betting to offshore porn. Offshore porn, baby. Offshore, yeah. God bless America. Offshore porn. So, so this is going to be the choice. If you want to watch porn online now, Tom, you uh, either got to give up all your driver's license information and all that, or basically just accept the malware that you're going to get from uh, from China. Oh yeah, I'll go to offshore porn where there's like obviously way less regulation on porn and. The people in the Russian porn videos are probably computer virus. Yeah, it's definitely anything in anything in another country 
that you watch is definitely most likely going to be sex trafficking. Uh, you know, you want to go to some Eastern Europe, Eastern European site. The chance that those women are sex trafficked probably is pretty high, which I get it. There are still porn out there that people probably watch that pops up on your normal sites. That's probably women that are coerced into it. Uh, that is not 110%, uh, you know, consensual. I get that. But with that being said, you, you know, you get a privacy issue. Some of the Reddit comments is no, has nobody heard of a VPN? You could do that. VPNs cost money. Uh, 14, 15 year old me, uh, you know, way back in the day on the iPod touch, probably would not have known how to access a VPN. Let's be honest. Um, you know, obviously the Playboys aren't as prevalent um, as they used to be. Uh, you know, I feel like I don't know. Let me. I don't, this is this is dangerous territory. It's a very dangerous territory. But I'm gonna I'm gonna. I'm, this is like a minefield, but I think I got a mind sweeper for this. Um, you, might have, you might be on something. Um, here, here's another thing I wonder too, Tom. Now I have so many questions on this. Could this be like the comeback that the the magazine or the video store industry needed? Like, is this going to be going in the wayback machine of your buddy? You know, is going to find you that that porno DVD or you know some some magazine you know that you got the plastic off from the Seven Eleven or whatever? I mean, like, does that now make it come back? So people don't have to use their IDs here or whatever. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, listen. We know the dangers of porn and all that. People say all the time, yada yada yada. Anybody that you talk to that says, "Oh, I never watch porn. Or I've never engaged in. That. I've never um, taken part in that bullshit." I don't care who you are. Um, everybody's done a Google search that they wouldn't be proud of. I put it on my whole life. Everybody's searched something on Google or something on a site that they would not share to the general public. You're telling me with the privacy concerns that you're going to scan your ID just to access that? Absolutely not. There's no way. What this is going to probably be, if this gets passed, uh, uh, you know, in major all around, if if this gets passed, around like an uh if this gets passed around like a playboy in the 80s in the in the boys bathroom um what's going to end up happening is all these sites are going to do a workaround where all you're going to do is you're going to go to the site it's going to say are you over 18 years of age you're going to click yes and that's going to be it um all the alcohol sites now that you go to if you wanted to go to makersmark.com the first thing you're going to see is, are you over 21? And you put in your birthday. I think that's stupid. Uh, the webs on the beer stuff, like, what's the point well, of that? Well, it's just a workaround. That's all it is. They legally have to put that on there. But they make it for anybody that could go in there. It's just right a legality issue. I think that's what we're looking at here. If you had to, like, scan your ID, like, take a picture of it, and it goes to them... No way anybody's doing that. I'm absolutely not doing that. Um, you know, for if I ever visit those sites, you know, I'm not doing that. 
I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that for any site. Imagine every time you log into Twitter, they say, is this you? And you have to scan your driver's license to get on Twitter. There's a lot of porn on Twitter. A lot. I mean, I see more. I, I'll see more porn on Twitter than, you know, a, a, some random person pops up. You can go down a rabbit hole. You can get anything you want on Twitter. They don't have age verification. You have to be looking for it to pop up either. I mean, I, I mean, you could easily get on the Twitter search and so, type Titty Tuesday, and that shit's popping up, and you have a myriad of OnlyFans that you could choose from. So you don't even have to use your dad's ID. You can just go ahead and use his credit card again. All right. I think overall this is a privacy issue. You know, first first off, right. I mean, if, if you know, think about that. Like, you're thinking, oh, okay, uh, you know, data leaks happen all the time. Um, credit, you know, credit cards get leaked all the time. You have identity theft. What if... You know, something gets leaked and it turns out that, um, let's say, let's just use one of the more popular people at the moment that just won the Super Bowl. What if it turns out Andy Reid scanned his ID, gives away his address, his driver's license number, his picture, data, all that, and uh, that gets leaked out. And it turns out that, uh, you know, Andy Reid's watching some Salt Lake City, I don't know, crazy-ass polygamy Mormon porn. You know what? What if what if Andy Reid's watching like some weird ass animated cheeseburger porn? He's finished. You know. Um, so I mean, that's that's exaggerated. But like, think of like the biggest people you know. What if Kevin Stick got watch? You know, got caught watching like Native American porn. Done. Finished. He's he's done. Uh, you know. It, you mean it could be anything? Um. We'll end on this. Here's, here's <laughs> one more thought on this, Tom. Um, if they regulate, you know, porn in this way, you know, if you're going to have to give your ID and your information, at that point, I wouldn't that, I think, be good for OnlyFans? Because if you're like, well, if my information is going to be out there anyway, if they know who I am, I might as well, you know, pay or... or get what I want, you know, try to, you know, be personal about it. I would think that's probably actually the beneficiary. This probably be the only fans crowd. I, you know what? Maybe I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think that if I was to ever get on only fans, I think the allure of a lot of the only fans, I think the draw to only fans, this is coming from me and I'll put this on my, on anybody you want me to, I'll put it on a friendship Jones. I've never went on OnlyFans. Like, I've never purchased anything from OnlyFans. Never have given that. Like, I've never paid for that. Um, just because, you know, if I wanted to search anything, yeah, well, it's free online. The, the lore of it, the, the novelty of OnlyFans is that I think you know somebody that's on OnlyFans. I know a few people that have posted their OnlyFans that I know personally. The novelty to me for OnlyFans is it it's people that you know. Right. It's not some it's not Pamela Anderson who you don't have any shot of meeting. Well, I don't know, maybe you'll meet her this weekend at, at, in Daytona. You know, I, I feel like your past 
uh, expenditures in Daytona, you've also met some OnlyFans women. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's that's the novelty. Of the, okay, you know them. But you can also make an OnlyFans ID. I don't think it tells your first name if you just make a username. So don't, nobody necessarily knows it's you. Now, if you have to scan your ID to do it, then they're like, okay, well, some girl from high school that you might have thought was hot when she was like a junior, senior, grows up to be some porn star on OnlyFans making – I will think about – we've done a Tom Fuller Jones before where a teacher decided to quit teaching to do OnlyFans. There's been a few of those. Yeah, imagine if it's your teacher and she's like – sees like, oh, 2013, I had him in class and now he's like, like oh, I got to see this. Watching me drop my titties out. I mean, you know. Then one's in, okay, well, that's kind of embarrassing for both parties. So, right. I don't know. This this just seems like an idea that's going to backfire. I am shocked that that your boy Kevin Stitt and your boy Ryan Walters aren't all in on this. Right. Oh, my Not gosh. yet. They, they, they must be behind. They, they The only reason it's not in Oklahoma yet is because they haven't heard of it. Give it time, yeah. Well, yeah, give it uh, time. Gosh, that's uh, that's funny. We could kept, we could talk about this all day. We could do a whole show on this. But we got to run. A lot of fun here in uh, Daytona Beach at the Daytona 500. I'll have more coverage this weekend on social media. Uh, big week on our uh, racing podcast, Let's Go Racing with David Starr. We're out here with, with David as well. Uh, big thanks to all our guests that join us. Uh, and uh, you, the listener, for stopping by. Follow me on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Tyler Jones Live. Follow Thomas at uh, Instant Thomas on Instagram, Thomas underscore Bridges on Twitter. Subscribe to the show. New episodes out each and every week. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review or don't leave us one at all, and we'll see you right back here next week. Thomas Bridges, Derek Hagman, Coach Bo, all of our entire crew. I'm Tyler Jones. Sing so long. This has been another edition of Jones Report. We'll see you next week.